Audio Jungle. This morning, though, more than 8,000 U.S. troops are now on heightened alert with fears rising that Russia could invade Ukraine. So far, no troops have been deployed, but the U.S. and its NATO allies are stepping up their response, hoping to discourage Russia from crossing the Ukrainian border. Right now, more than 100,000 Russian troops are along the border of Ukraine with no diplomatic breakthrough in sight. The U.S. and other Western countries are preparing for the worst case scenario. We hope it doesn't come to that, of course. Uh, but if Mr. Putin has designs beyond Ukraine, if he intends to threaten the NATO alliance, we want to make sure that we're doing everything we can uh, to make sure that can't happen and that the, that the alliance and our alliance partners can defend themselves. President Biden spent part of his Monday in the Situation Room speaking with European leaders. The president says everyone is on the same page about trying to come to a peaceful resolution with Russia. Let's bring in NBC News White House correspondent Carol Lee and NBC News reporter Matt Bodner, who is in Moscow. Matt, going to start with you. Russia's presence along the Ukrainian border is growing. So what's the latest on the ground there and any signs, any signals that Vladimir Putin is close to making a decision on whether to invade? Joe, good morning. All right, so let's start with these troops and throw up the big board. Uh, obviously, Russia has already amassed a significant share of its of its ground forces. Also, air forces. We're seeing a lot of uh, or a decent amount of Russian naval activity as well. You know, one of the things that's caught my eye is that uh, the Russian Navy, not pictured on the map, but uh, off the coast of Ireland, has scheduled an exercise, a live fire exercise, about 250 kilometers off the coast of Ireland. That's drawing some attention. I actually read a story in the, in the Irish Observer this morning uh, uh, that uh, Irish fishermen are planning on going out there for a peaceful protest when this starts. I'm sure the Kremlin didn't anticipate that move. But much more seriously, we continue to see evidence on social media that Russia is moving troops uh, still uh, west uh, to those positions along the Ukrainian border. A lot of those are happening uh, in the open, uh, part of uh, uh, exercise plans, they say, with Belarus scheduled to kick off next week. Another development this morning is the Latvian military is claiming that four arms inspectors who are supposed to go uh, and do some inspections of that exercise under the Vienna document, which calls for transparency, if an exercise reaches a certain scale, uh, the Russian military, they say, denied them, citing COVID-19 uh, uh, protection measures. So, you know, Russia is sitting there saying its troops moving on their territory is their own business and is not threatening anyone. But it's kind of a strange move with that regard. Uh, more to your point on Vladimir Putin. We are expecting sometime this week the United States to deliver a formal response to Russia's laundry list of demands. Uh, and I think, you know, Russia's just kind of in a holding pattern now, waiting for that list uh, for that response. Once it happens, things will be a lot clearer. But until then, I would argue almost nothing we hear from Russia actually matters at the moment. So, Carol, in the meantime, 8,500 U.S. troops are now on high alert to help NATO as things continue to de-escalate. No deployment orders yet. President Biden spoke with European and NATO leaders yesterday afternoon. What are you learning about that meeting and what other support are the U.S. and NATO providing right now? 
Yeah, Joe, as Vladimir Putin aligns his troops along the border and, and decides what he's going to do, the White House, the president, and European leaders are trying to get on the same page in terms of how they would respond to any movement across the border into Ukraine. So the president had a virtual meeting with a number of European leaders, key leaders from Poland, Italy, the UK, Germany, France, the EU. And that meeting lasted about an hour and 20 minutes, according to the White House. Now, the White House came out of that meeting saying that everyone's on the same page in terms of steps that would be taken if Putin were to invade Ukraine again. However, we know there are big differences. And meanwhile, they're all just really trying to figure out and game out what exactly Vladimir Putin is going to do. They still don't have a full grasp on that. Take a listen to the White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki talk about this yesterday. Uh, while we can't get into the mind uh, of President Putin, we are seeing the preparations that they're making at the border. Uh, we have been in conversations and discussions with eastern flank countries. Obviously, our Secretary of State just returned from a trip to Europe as well, and he was part of the discussions this weekend, too. Uh, and part of that has been contingency planning and discussing what their needs have been. Now, it's worth noting that none of these troops that are on standby are slated to go to Ukraine, but the U.S. does continue to send military aid to Ukraine, Joe. Matt, what has been the reaction from Ukrainian and Russian leaders with more military help from NATO now on standby? So the Ukrainian reaction is, is, is kind of conflicted. On the one hand, they're downplaying the Russian threat from certain from certain areas in Kyiv. On the other hand, they definitely are raising awareness. They're in a tough spot. If they do too much right now, they could risk actually provoking uh, a Russian invasion. They could also scare away uh, uh, foreign investors and such. So it's a difficult position for Ukraine. Russia, of course, very predictably is looking at all the movements from NATO now and saying that's exactly what we're what we're talking about. Uh, NATO is trying to provoke something. They're trying to encourage Ukraine to attack eastern Ukraine. So uh, that, that's basically the situation now. Matt Bodner, Carol Lee, thank you so much. Now, this morning, investors will be hoping for some calm after Monday's roller coaster day of trading. All major U.S. indexes plunged early in the day yesterday, then rebounded. The Dow Jones had dropped more than 1,000 points before things turned around. Here to help us make sense of the latest market jitters is CNBC senior national correspondent Brian Sullivan. Brian, good morning. I mean, it really was a roller coaster. So walk us through what we saw on Wall Street yesterday. What led to this massive sell-off in the stocks? Why yesterday? And then that eventual rebound by the end of the day. How'd that happen? Well, a lot of it had to do with what you all just talked about, which is Russia, Ukraine. There's a lot of geopolitical tension in the world right now, not just because of the strategic importance of Ukraine and so many things, but because Russia is such a massive supplier of power and energy to most of Europe. Germany gets over 35% of its natural gas, oil, and coal, the things that make the power plants work, from Russia. So there's a lot of tension around what might happen if Russia goes in. How will Europe respond? How will we respond? The Pentagon putting 8,500 U.S. troops on deployment, potential for deployment there. So that is one major thing. Also, You've got the Federal Reserve, which is meeting today and tomorrow. They are expected widely to raise interest rates multiple times this year to try to cool down inflation. I'm sure you guys have talked about inflation a lot, constantly rising prices. One way to control that 
is to try to put the brakes on the economy, slow things down just a bit. The Federal Reserve doing that by raising borrowing costs, things like mortgages or credit card rates or car loans. Just, just raise them a little bit, guys, so that they, they slow down. The confusion is how many times the Fed will do that and whether or not they will be able to sort of weave that needle, that delicate needle thread through this economy, guys. And that's the question about what happened in that furious comeback as well. Yeah. Find somebody that takes both sides today. Absolutely. So we have these big issues, Ukraine, prospect of interest rate hikes by the Fed. Are these concerns, though, overblown as those things maybe stabilize a little bit more? Or should investors be worried about all this up and down? Oh, it's a good question. I mean, listen, Russia and Ukraine have had problems for a while. In fact, I was in Russia in 2014 when they effectively annexed the Crimean portion of southern Ukraine and still control that today. So this has been going on for some time. And I say that not because it's not huge, but because it should not be new. It's only just ratcheted up mm -hmm. in the last couple of weeks. The Federal Reserve, we've known they're going to do this. I think here's the reality, guys. The market has done fantastic the last number of years. A lot of people made a lot of money. They've been gambling on these beaten up stocks. They've been buying things like Bitcoin and Ether. The market, as many might say, got a bit frothy money was cheap. You could borrow money for just a couple of percent interest, if that. So cheap money combined with a lot of speculation. There's been a lot of, dare I say, gambling mm -hmm. going on in the market. Mm -hmm. And in the last couple of weeks with the nerves on high, some of that gambling has been pulled back. But overall, I think the economy is still very strong. And we'll see where this market goes from here. And Brian, quickly before I let you go, what advice would you give to investors right now who just saw what happened yesterday and aren't sure how to handle it? Think long term. Mm. Markets go down and that's healthy. Healthy corrections are a part of this market. Markets going up every day or when you need to be worried. It's OK to go down. Don't sell into the panic. Think long term. Markets go up 75 percent of the time. Brian, great advice there. Good for me to hear myself, too. Thank you very much. Good to see you. Some mixed news this morning on the coronavirus pandemic. COVID cases are dramatically falling in some regions of the country, while others are seeing a dangerous spike. Take a look at this map, which is based on an NBC News analysis of COVID-19 case number data. All those states in orange are no longer experiencing a surge in cases, but all the other states you see in gray are still surging. And at this rate, Dr. Anthony Fauci says he expects most states to reach a peak in Omicron cases by February. Here to help break down what this means moving forward is NBC News medical contributor Dr. Kavita Patel. So, Dr. Patel, this looks like a hopeful sign that we may have turned the corner with Omicron or are close to turning the corner, but we shouldn't let our guard down right now, right? Right. That's right, Joe, because coming down, there's still a lot of cases. And as you mentioned, many parts of the country are still going up in their swing and unfortunately hospitalizations will follow. So Dr. Patel, this morning NBC News learned that Pfizer will begin to test an Omicron COVID-19 vaccine for people between the ages of 18 and 55. So by now we've learned it takes time to test and eventually approve a vaccine. So why is this happening? Do we need a vaccine specifically for Omicron, especially if it's not available right away? 
Yeah, Joe, it's a significant development. The, both Moderna and Pfizer announced that they were working on something. Today, we got the most details from Pfizer. By the way, changing an mRNA vaccine doesn't take as long as one might think. It's like changing the contents of a FedEx package. It's very important, but the outside of the package is still the same one. So it can take several months but that's a very short time frame. It's important to do this because we need to understand if Omicron does become really the dominant variant in the world and our current vaccines are decreased in its effectiveness, having one that's updated will give us a lot more information and could be incredibly useful if it continues to hang around and cause surges in the future. Helpful analogy with the FedEx package there. All right, let's get to a viewer question. Matt from New Mexico writes, at the beginning of the pandemic, quarantine was 14 days. Why or how has that turned into five days quarantine? And should that be five days with the mask? What can you say to Matt about that? Yeah, so Matt, you're bringing up an important distinction. I want to just say that if you're fully vaccinated and boosted, you don't really need to do anything different other than wear a mask. And if possible, try to get a test. That's me adding on to the CDC. But to Matt's point, if you are not boosted, you've just had that primary series, or you're unvaccinated, they do recommend a five-day quarantine. And that is also with a mask. And that is because in those first five days, that's the highest infectious period. It doesn't mean it drops to zero but it's the most vulnerable time and the time in which you're most likely to test positive. All right, Dr. Patel, thank you so much. I know our viewers appreciate it. And thank you to everyone who has been sending in questions for our doctors. We do want to hear from you, and our doctors are ready to answer your questions. You can email us at morningnewsnow at NBCUNI.com with your questions, and you can always let us know if you'd prefer to stay anonymous. Healthcare workers are fighting this latest COVID wave with more tools than they've ever had before. That includes those antiviral pills that President Biden touted in his news conference last week. Now, we have more treatments that people can, that for people to keep people out of the hospital than any other point in the pandemic, including life-saving antiviral pills. We purchased 20 million of these new Pfizer pills more than any country in the world. NBC News correspondent Ellison Barber joins us now in New York. Ellison, good morning. So these pills can be very effective according to this data. And as we just heard, the president says we have more of these COVID pills than any other country, tens of millions of them. But tracking them down seems to have been a problem for some people. I mean, there's not the access that there is with vaccines or tests in terms of a tool to fight this virus. So tell us what's going on and how hard they have been to find. Hey, Savannah. Yeah, I mean, you're right. This does seem to be a very effective tool in terms of dealing with COVID-19. But the problem seems to be that the demand for these treatments, it far out outweighs and out, out uh, exceeds the supply that is currently available. We've spoken to people who say as they've gone to speak to doctors or even pharmacists, they've had some of those people say they, one, don't know where they could find them, and two, sometimes they don't know exactly what they are. Now, why all of this is such a struggle at this point is a little harder to explain. It's a bit of a multi-layered issue here. These treatments 
since they are approved under emergency use authorizations. And what we've been told by representatives from the two companies that produce these treatments, Pfizer and Merck, is that they produce them, they distribute them, give them to the U.S. government. But then in terms of how they're divided, uh, divvied up between states, who gets priority, and communication as to where they are located, what specific pharmacies have them. All of that, they say, is something that is under the federal government's jurisdiction, if you will. Let me explain to you or break down for you, rather, some of the numbers in terms of how many COVID pill treatments are out there right now. Pfizer says 250,000 treatment courses will be delivered to the U.S. government by the end of the month. 10 million treatment courses, they say, are expected to ship to the U.S. government by June. Merck, the other company that produces these types of pills, they say 2 million of their treatment courses have shipped to the U.S. government so far, and 3.1 million courses are expected to ship to the U.S. government by the end of this month. Doctors we've spoken to, they are optimistic when it comes to these pills, but they are urging patients, saying that it takes time to produce this sort of thing in general, that it's out, they say, quicker than expected. And one thing doctors we spoke to kept saying is, remember, two years ago, there were not any outpatient treatment options for their COVID patients. Here's more. Production has been ramped up, and I think there'll be more supply, and I think the government is, is trying to ensure that there's enough supply. But I think these drugs are not easy to produce. It's going to take some time. The good news is that we have them. The good news is that Omicron, uh, the mutations in Omicron don't impact those drugs. Those drugs are still effective. The bad news is we simply don't have enough of those drugs. And let's talk eligibility in terms of these pills. For Merck, the minimum age is 18 years. You need to initiate that treatment course within five days of symptoms. They say uh, their treatment is not recommended during pregnancy. For Pfizer, Paxlovid treatment, which had uh, higher rates of efficacy in some of the early studies, it has more restrictions. The minimum age is 12, and you have to be at least 88 pounds initiated within five days of symptoms. But they have a very long list of interactions, potential interactions of other medications people might be taking that limits eligibility there. But the big thing, Savannah, for both of these, you have to have a prescription from uh, a doctor. Oh, it's Savannah. interesting even to hear some of the details there, because as these mm -hmm. are just kind of starting to become accessible, we haven't heard a lot about exactly how these work, how many pills you're taking. So that's interesting to hear. What have people who have been trying to track down these pills who either have a family member experiencing it, maybe they're sick themselves, what have they been telling you about trying to get them? Yeah, we talked to one family, a son whose mother lives in the Houston area. She is triple vaxxed but immunocompromised. And when she contracted COVID-19, he'd heard about these new COVID pills. And he told her, hey, you need to talk to your doctor and see if you can get these. But she says when she went and spoke to her doctor, he said, if you can find them somewhere, I'll write you a prescription. But I can't do that legwork for you, and I don't know any pharmacies that have that. Her son then went on an hours-long search to try and find them. Listen. I ended up calling 12 um, pharmacies and getting all different kinds of answers about uh, whether or not the pill 
was available, uh, whether or not they could tell me if they had it. Uh, many had not heard of it uh, at all or were unfamiliar with any antiviral. For it to be as effective as it can be, it needs to be taken within the first five days of um, symptoms. And those days were running out, uh, waiting on um, waiting on clearance and uh, prescription and information. So there is a website the health department has where you can go and it's an interactive map to see exactly which pharmacies in your area might have some of these pills available. We'll show you what that looks like on the screen here because it's a little challenging, quite frankly, to get to the website. The entire URL for it is too long for us to even put up on screen. I think we could post it on Twitter and our social media platforms. But if you search for the COVID-19 therapeutics low Locator, you or your provider. In theory, you can access it through healthdata.gov and kind of get a real-time look at where some of these COVID pills are available. But people, they tell us, Savannah, they wish it was a little bit easier to find that and to navigate this system. Savannah. Absolutely. You hear those stories of pharmacies not even knowing what people are talking about. It's very confusing. All right, Ellison Barber, we'll check out your Twitter for that information. Thank you so much. The Supreme Court is adding affirmative action to the list of high-profile issues. Justices plan to tackle this term. The court has agreed to hear legal challenges to the admissions process at Harvard and the University of North Carolina. The cases could alter college admissions as we know it, presenting the most serious threat to affirmative action in decades. Here's NBC News Justice correspondent Pete Williams. This is the most serious threat in decades to the practice of considering a student's race in college admissions, and it could result in a decision that bans the practice or at least scales it back. The court agreed to hear two cases challenging race-conscious admissions, one at a private school, Harvard, the other at a public one, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Opponents say both Harvard and UNC discriminate against Asian-American applicants, and that UNC also discriminates against whites. The Supreme Court has repeatedly ruled, most recently six years ago, that schools cannot use quotas to meet racial admissions goals, but can consider a student's race as one plus factor among many other qualities in helping schools achieve the educational benefits of a more diverse student body. But the challengers say that's a vague concept. They say if schools want diversity, they should consider a student's background and experiences directly without using race as a proxy for those factors. Two justices who ruled in favor of affirmative action in the past, Anthony Kennedy and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, are now gone, succeeded by Trump appointees Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett, they haven't written much about affirmative action as lower court judges, so their views are not well known, but it's likely they'll be more skeptical than Kennedy and Ginsburg were. The court will hear the case in its next term, which begins in October. Back to you. P. Williams, thanks so much. It's going to check on your morning news now weather. Which means it's time for Bill Cairns to join us this morning. Hi, Bill. Hey, good morning, guys. So we got a lot of talk about. So it's kind of quiet and it's very cold. And then we got this potential weekend snowstorm, especially for New England on Saturday. So we're going to talk more about that in depth next hour. Let's start with the weather that's of greatest concern, and that's going to be the snowy weather in the Midwest and the brutal cold that's moved in behind it in Chicago. 
you know, it was your typical two to four inches of kind of fluffy snow. It wasn't really hard to brush off the car and move around. Gary, Indiana had six inches of snow, one of the highest totals in the region. And so uh, that set the stage for this morning. And I hope you got out and cleaned everything up because a lot of that slush is now rock hard as the really bitter cold has moved in. We could have wind chills this morning as low as negative 50. I mean, that's like very even for Minnesota, that's dangerous. 13 million people are under wind chill advisories. And let's see who the coldest is right now. Minneapolis, actually, is even colder than International Falls. Negative 28 right now in Minneapolis. Green Bay is down to negative 20. Chicago, negative 9. And that cold Arctic air is on its way towards through the Ohio Valley. It'll arrive in the Northeast tonight. So it's not exactly warm this morning in the Northeast, but enjoy it while it lasts because tomorrow is going to be much colder. So the Arctic Express, temperatures are definitely about 10 to 15 degrees colder than normal in the Midwest. Minneapolis, 25 degrees colder than tomorrow, as advertised. That cold air spreads all the way to Dallas, Raleigh, New York. And this weekend, that cold is going to linger. And guys, if you're going to get a snowstorm, it has to be cold enough, right? So that cold air is in place in the north. Audio Jungle. Money and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond. This is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York, in for Emily Chang, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, tech stocks. The worst week since the pandemic shut America down in March 2020. Could this be a humbling correction for the sector? We discuss. Plus, we'll talk with Bitfury CEO Brian Brooks about the big crypto sell-off we're witnessing and Bitcoin hitting its lowest level since July. This on the heels of a House hearing that took place on Thursday. We'll have all the details. And with all the volatility in the markets, we'll take a look at which brands have the best staying power. Thanks in large part to their messaging campaigns, we'll dive into the best companies empower and grow. First though, we've got to dive into these markets. What a finish. What a volatile week. It was a short week. It felt like a very long one. Tech stocks dropping this Friday. Investors focusing on the worrying signals as earnings season gets underway, but also what the Federal Reserve will do next week. Ed Ludlow, you got the breakdown. I mean, that's that bearish pivot that we got halfway through the week. That's what's so astonishing. So much red on the screen, right? The takeaway, the NASDAQ 100, very tech-heavy index having its worst week since March 2020. My goodness, do I remember March 2020. Every market participant does, of course. NYSE Fang Plus Index following with the same pattern. Tech stocks broadly feeling that pain. And semiconductors, the Philadelphia Semiconductor Index, or SOX, down for a fifth consecutive day. But, of course, it was such an outperformer in 2021. And then you get to the end of the, the short, long, short week. Long, short week. You just you get there. And then Bitcoin comes at you at 5 p.m. Eastern time on a Friday because in the last hour, Bitcoin has fallen from $38,100 to $36,000. Did they get the memo late on this risk off, Caroline, or, or are they just... Same thing happened yesterday, right? 
What is happening? They're trying to keep us on our toes, but bring up the next board, Mr. Director, because I do want to focus on the equity markets and the NASDAQ 100 and that bearish tilt I was talking about. You're right, Caroline. It seems like at the beginning of the week, we came back from the long weekend holiday and we were looking at the outlook for rates, the Fed. We were focused on yields. But then later in the week, Yields actually receded a little bit, but the Nasdaq 100 continued lower. We had that news from Peloton, of course. We had a lot of news around Netflix. And then we focus on earnings and look at the decline and how that carried on across Thursday and Friday. I do want to look at those two stocks specifically very quickly. Peloton actually kind of rebounding on Friday. Of course, the CEO and the company came out late Thursday night and outlined their plan to get back on track cut production volumes because of weaker demand, shrink the company, make painful layoffs, and investors responded positively. But Netflix, the biggest drop since July of 2012, down more than 20%. We know the story. An outlook of 2.5 million subscribers for the first quarter, far softer than the street or even Netflix was expecting. Why? Changing macro environment, economic pain in emerging markets, and competition. What a week. The perfect marriage of macro and micro. Ed, you always do it for us. We thank you so much. Let's stick with exactly where Ed was leaving off, the biggest weekly drop for tech since the start of the pandemic. To discuss what's changed, if anything, Mona Mahajan is with us, senior investment strategist at Edward Jones, who joins us now from Warren, New Jersey. It's always great to have your market analysis, Mona. What do you make of the drops? Yeah, look, it's been a brutal week for investors, and not only tech investors, but investors broadly. We now have an S&P 500 down 7%. NASDAQ is down 12% year to date. Keep in mind, that's three weeks of 2022 already. Uh, you know, what we think about is we really do try to take a step back and think where we are in the macro picture. And what we see is really we're still in what we're calling mid to late mid part of this economic expansion. So um, certainly you guys had referenced 2020. Uh, this is not an economic year like 2020 was. We're still looking at GDP growth plus 4%. We're still looking at earnings growth 7 to 9% in the S&P 500 this year. Uh, we're still looking at a consumer that remains pretty healthy. Corporate balance sheets remain pretty healthy. We are not uh, by any stretch and certainly by any forecast we've seen heading into any sort of recessionary environment. Uh, so we would not expect the markets to head towards recession-like bear market 20% plus drawdowns. Now, the NASDAQ has broken some important technical levels. Could there be more pain ahead? Absolutely. Uh, but what we're thinking about, particularly for the first half of, of this year, uh, where could investors win? We do think value and cyclical investments hold up well. We do think uh, non-U.S., you know, international and EM in particular, uh, they could win also by being more value heavy, less tech heavy. Uh, but I will also say for those investors that are longer term, that don't have the tech exposure that they want, uh, we do see that story coming back into favor, especially as growth does slow, uh, perhaps by end of this year through next year. And so um, don't give up all, all hope yet. Uh, we do think, you know, volatility is likely. We are hopeful that the Fed steps in and, and maybe uh, puts a little bit of, of hope underneath this market. Hmm. But uh, in the meantime, make sure your, your portfolio looks balanced, has some of those value cyclical and non-U.S. exposure as well. So, Mona, do you think the Fed will back off because of the gyrations in the market? 
You know, it's interesting. I think some of the market or the market has done some of the work for the Fed. We certainly have had rates move from 150 to, you know, 180 levels in the 10-year. Uh, we've had markets now price in four, in some cases, five uh, rate hikes for 2022. We certainly see an end to the balance sheet tapering. Of course, markets starting to price in QT now, so balance sheet contraction uh, by mid this year as well. So when the Fed does meet next week, uh, we don't expect them now, or the probability of them having a hawkish surprise for markets is much lower. So could they, in fact, um, then come out with a slightly more dovish mark, uh, message than the market expects? Mm. Perhaps the probabilities are tilting in that direction. And so, you know, right now the markets are in a bit of a void. They are waiting to see uh, what's on the mind of Jerome Powell and the Fed, certainly waiting to see how the rest of earnings season plays out. Um, both of those could could be a source of stability in the weeks ahead. Mona, many like to say this is a healthy correction. <laughs> many don't say it's a healthy bear market. But I am interested in whether you think this is actually, you know, a lot of that brought forward valuation front running a lot of the growth that we were yet to see in some of these stocks is actually just coming out of the market somewhat. Should we find a sort of level? Is this is this in some way where some tech stocks should be trading? Yeah, it's a great point. And, you know, look, we, we have said and we've looked at the, the historical analysis does show that as the Fed starts its tightening cycle, um, valuations do compress. And we do see the highest value, more speculative parts of the market underperform. And so when you look at tech uh, thus far, you know, the NASDAQ, as we talked about, down 12%. But if you look at more speculative plays, ARC funds, for example, down 24%. Uh, Bitcoin, as you guys alluded to earlier, now down also 20% plus. So we're certainly seeing within that tech spectrum uh, those higher valuation speculative parts of the market underperform. That, we think, uh, does make sense. And we, we continue to see you know, rate volatility, especially as we get through this Fed hiking cycle, that could continue to have or spark bouts of volatility in those higher valuation speculative tech markets. Uh, now, from an S&P 500 perspective, you know, down 7%, and, and we've said this in the past, you know, in any given year, historically, one to three corrections in the five to 10, maybe 15% range are the norm. Uh, last year and the year before, we actually haven't gotten many. We had one 5% correction last year. And so perhaps we're starting the year uh, with a bang, but perhaps the, the volatility is returning, in fact, to more normal levels um, and perhaps offering some opportunities, especially if you think about these pullbacks as opportunities to diversify portfolios or add to risk if you haven't done so already. Um, if we don't see that 20% that plus drawdown, uh, it may take a little bit of, of time for stabilization, but we certainly see opportunities in the market ahead. Next week's going to be a big one, the Fed and earnings. Mona Mahajan, it's always great to check in with you. Thank you for your expert analysis there. Meanwhile, stay well, have a great weekend, and we continue to look at a story that we're looking in terms of lawmakers. Going to rein in big tech potentially with antitrust bills. Google ramped up its spending in Washington last year while it fought off antitrust scrutiny. According to disclosure reports, now the company spent $9.6 million on lobbying in 2021. That was a more than 27% increase from the previous year. Still to come, we'll talk more about tech stocks seeing massive sell-offs in, in an interview with the CEO of Silicon Valley Bank. We'll see what he has to say in terms of the public markets and the private markets. Gregory Becker's with us. This is Bloomberg.
Just a quick look again at how tech stocks performed today. It wasn't pleasant if you're along these markets, red on red on red. Let's talk about what that all means in the context actually of investing, investing in technology for the year. Can you make a trend out of this for 2022? Greg Becker is with us. He's a CEO of Silicon Valley Bank. On because you've just had your own numbers. You are, of course, a company that, what is it, about roughly 50% of the venture capital companies out there in the US, many VC firms, bank with you. You had a record year. Is that likely to continue? Yeah, well, it's great to be here. Uh, interesting week to be on uh, on Bloomberg, but uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll hopefully provide some... Kudos uh, for sticking with us. We thank you. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Some calmness to it, because I think it's a, it's important to think, at least the market that we're in, to think about this not on a daily basis, weekly basis, but to think about it longer term. So I'll describe that. But uh, we had a great year last year. Uh, last year was a record year in almost every category. We had almost 70% asset growth. Um, our net interest income was up incredible, and we had a great fourth quarter. And what was also positive is that we increased our guidance for 2022. Um, and that's before there's any benefit of, of rates. So um, that's the good news. Clearly, the challenge is what you're uh, seeing, we're all seeing right now, which is the tech tech correction that we're watching kind of on a daily basis. From your perspective, did you see it coming? Did you feel that this is sort of where valuations had gone too far too fast there needed to be some sort of realignment or is this taking you by surprise yeah you know i've been so i've been at svb for 28 years and i've seen a lot of different uh, cycles and what it always, always feels like there's um the the public markets tend to i would say overshoot the mark periodically and then they undershoot the market uh, mark periodically and it feels like that's where we where we were last year. Um, everything was priced per, priced to perfection. Everything was going well. Nothing could go wrong, and that's just not the world that we we live in, especially with high growth uh, high growth companies. The fundamentals are still very 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 strong with these companies. Clearly, some are being impacted negatively with the pandemic and supply chain, or with the pandemic hopefully being behind us in the not too distant future. Some of the pandemic stocks correcting. But if you really look at the fundamentals of so many businesses, it's really just a, the valuation is just is coming down a little bit. And we also see that almost in every situation when rates start to pick up, you start to see the highest growth stocks tend to pull back. So I don't think we should be that surprised we're sitting here right now. Talk to us about what the private markets are telling us right now because with the public markets as you say sometimes the pendulum swinging too far one direction or the other you've got the vision fund ceo of course the 100 billion that they've been putting to work saying that private markets are overvalued you've had the kathy woods of this world saying she's never seen such a disconnect between private markets and public markets than there are at the moment is the private market getting the memo from the public market and we starting to see valuations come down there too do you think yeah, well, again, much different private versus public markets, right? Public markets are they're marked market, you know, every every minute of every you know trading day, um, so you see that um, impact and you see the volatility, right? With private markets, the only only time valuations change for the most part is when a a new round of financing is raised, and that price is set when that money is raised. Just don't have these the the day to day volatility. Um, last year was a record year for 
um, fundraising. It was a record year for money going into uh, venture-backed companies, almost double what it was the, the prior year. And so our valuations healthy, very high, price to perfection, absolutely. Um, but there's so many incredible companies in that portfolio. So do I, do I see 2022 and see some valuations corrections with some of these companies? The answer is I do. Um, but that, again, that's a healthy, um, that's a healthy market. It's a healthy market in the public, to be honest, and it's a healthy market in the private. So that being said, um, what I've said for years is that you look out and you say, um, what I can promise is that the innovation economy is going to be up and to the right. It just may be a little bit of a zigzag on the way up. <laughs> so we're still thinking not just this quarter, next quarter, not just the end of this year, next year, but really several years out. And that's why we continue to invest in this market across our entire platform. Greg, will, I mean, of course, you are a commercial lender to a lot of these businesses. You're also, they've got the investment banking part. Will we see fewer companies wanting to go public if they've been so priced to, price to perfection in the private markets? Will companies again start to stay private that bit longer or will they do their fundraisings out of the public glare if you've got this sort of volatility upon us? Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll answer that in two different ways. One is I'll talk about the market, then I'll talk about our business relative to um, public listing of tech stocks, uh, capabilities that we brought on board. Um, so last year was an incredible year. Um, when you look at the number of SPACs and just new IPOs, I mean, it was, it was a really uh, prolific year. Do we expect the same thing in, in 22? Um, the answer is no. We do think it's going to be um, softer. But there's still hundreds and hundreds of companies that are performing exceptionally well that, to be honest, should be and could be public companies. Whether they choose to go out this year, that's up, that's up to them. They're going to make that decision. They're not going to be forced to because a lot of those companies are cash rich and they can continue just to perform as private companies. So they're going to wait and see to what the market looks like. But there will be companies that will go public. Now, now for us, um, we've had a healthcare business and investment banking, equity capital markets done extremely well the last couple of years. We've built onto that healthcare services and now technology. And so we're starting from a really small base. So we, we feel good about the upside for technology investment banking in this year um, because we're, again, we're just building that capability. So some IPOs, but most of it is going to be around MA. Um, private M&A, sponsored buyouts, and those sort of things. So it's really, you have to understand kind of where, where things are coming from. But yeah, it's going to be a little bit softer than last year for sure. Greg Becker, it's always great to catch up with you. Thank you. CEO of Silicon Valley Bank talking us through what he sees for the year 2022. Meanwhile, coming up, it's not just tech stocks seeing pretty large corrections. So is crypto. Bitcoin now down to a six-month low. Not quite in a bear market, but close. We're going to talk to the CEO, Bitfury. That's next. This is Bloomberg. Crypto taking a hit, not just, of course, the coins themselves, but crypto-related stocks, too, continuing to stink. Question on now many a mind is how low will they go? Our next guest might be able to bring an insight or two into that. I want to send it over to our colleague, Shanali Bassett, with more. 
Yeah, absolutely. We're going to listen to what happened just yesterday, which is a big hearing in Washington, lasted hours. And, you know, Brian Brooks, the CEO of Bitfury, was one of the people to testify. Brian, you know, not your first time in Washington. Obviously, you were one of the main banking regulators. But what was the tone like for you yesterday in a hearing like this compared to what you've seen in the most recent years? Well, you know, Shanali, the, the tone was, frankly, so much more substantive and so much less political, uh, even than I was expecting, and I watched this stuff pretty closely. You know, you might have gone into this, the, the hearing was focused on Bitcoin mining and energy usage, among other things, and you might have expected this to be a Democrat versus Republican issue with the Democrats on the environmental side and the Republicans on the free market side, but actually the tenor of the hearing was much more measured than that. I think both sides were um, accepting that Bitcoin in particular and crypto generally is here to stay, that adoption has been very widespread. And the issue is how do we mitigate some of the worst effects while allowing this technology to grow and gain adoption? I think it was terrific. Well, here, one of the points that you made was that the, the Bitcoins that are mined and used are more productive for the economy per uh, usage than, than the banking system has been efficient for this. So I'm curious as to why that is what you're using to measure the energy consumption as a whole for an industry rather than the absolute usage of energy for, for Bitcoin itself. Yeah, well, so, so Shanali, the way that I think about it is everything we do in the world consumes energy. Like right now, I'm talking to you on a MacBook computer, which, you know, had to be charged earlier today, and you're sitting in a TV studio with a bunch of lights. So everything uses energy. The question is, how much productivity do you get per unit of energy? And, and that's a knowable fact. So it turns out, for example, I'm sitting here at an airport right now. Turns out the global aviation industry every year consumes 11,000 terawatts of energy. And it only generates a few hundred billion dollars of market cap for that 11,000 terawatts. Now, Bitcoin has generated a trillion dollars of value for 188 terawatts of energy. Shows that it's a good way of creating and storing value that the market has decided is valuable. And so I would just say when you're talking about energy in the, in the world, what you want to figure out is are we devoting every watt of energy to the most productive use. And Bitcoin is pretty darn productive as measured by market sentiment. But productive for you, if you live in a community and there's a Bitcoin miner there and the, the energy does not really get used for their home or their small business, doesn't that pose a problem for the person in the community? Well, that, Shanali, that is actually a great question, and I'm glad you gave me the chance to actually kind of rebut that, that suggestion, because a lot of people seem to have in their mind a zero-sum approach to energy and a lot of other things. And so, look, if in a given town there was only so much energy to go around and a Bitcoin miner showed up and took it, you'd probably be right. But it turns out that the business model of Bitcoin mining is to help utilities build more power production. And so at Bitfury, one of the main things we do is we joint venture with utilities and renewable providers who want to bring more power into a community. And the problem with the economics of those is that the baseload consumption may not be high enough in that town to justify the new capacity. So the right way to think about it is we're the ones who are bringing you the additional capacity you need for all of the other purposes in your life. Brian, I want to pivot a little. I know that you put some of your own money towards cryptocurrency, and we've seen such a sell-off in Bitcoin and other cryptos lately. What are you hearing among investors on what they plan to do with their holdings? Do you see more selling? Do you see people buying the dip? Are you buying the dip? 
Yeah, well, I, I mean, first of all, um, not that I give investment advice to other people, but yeah, I'm buying the dip. These are historic lows. It's sort of amazing that you can buy Bitcoin below $40,000 today, and I did. Uh, not advising other two, but, but but I definitely did. But Shanali, I'm a random walk down Wall Street kind of a guy, so I don't believe in following short-term price movements. You know, the evidence is that people who check their account every day wind up poorer than people who don't check their account every day. So to me, the more important things to know about Bitcoin price is, for example, a headline in Money Magazine from six hours ago, which reports that the majority of millennials and Gen Z Americans are putting crypto into their retirement plan. Or for example, Goldman Sachs's recent finding from a week ago that, that uh, Bitcoin has now overtaken 20% of the store of value market, 20% from gold, right? So these long-term macro trends are, are much more telling than short-term price movements, which go up and down depending on people's risk appetite. Look, tech had a bad day in Washington yesterday, had a massive sell-off in New York as a result of that. Mm -hmm. And crypto is just part of that, but you shouldn't be doing this for the short term. Brian, that's um, some great insight there. Thank you so much for joining us. That's Brian Brooks, the CEO of BitFury. Thank you. Let me send it back to Caroline. And kind of phenomenal day all in all when you're looking at some of the, you know, in intraday moves, Shanali, in whether it be the crypto coins, whether you're looking at, it wasn't just Bitcoin, of course, front and center, but you look at, you know, Solana and some of the other key protocols that are all sort of being thrown out to certain one side. Has anyone been telling you when they might find a bottom? Yeah, that's the big question, because on Wall Street, it's all about risk management here. And if you can't find the bottom, then you're unwilling to invest unless you are putting your own personal money in it. But with that said, we're finally finding a little more about what it means to have a correlation. There was a sense that it was uncorrelated related to financial markets, and we're seeing that's not necessarily the case. What is it, like 0.4 correlation between the NASDAQ and Bitcoin? Like, this is this is not a diversified trade away from And what about the interest tech. rates, right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, the whole thing is, unfortunately, for now, the digital gold argument seems to have broken down. Yeah, absolutely. We'll see where it goes into the next year. We'll have plenty more on crypto. We'll have plenty more on astronomical microstrategy move as well on the back of the SEC rejecting its Bitcoin accounting. We'll be digging all into it with Lee Drogan, of course, a man who's pivoted into the world of crypto. This is Bloomberg. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. Let's get right back into these financial markets because it was a blistering day. Bloomberg's Ed Ludlow looks at now not just the space in terms of stocks, but cross-asset, the crypto space too. Yeah, I think it's been a really interesting week. And a lot of the volatility, say, or the big moves, to be more precise, in Bitcoin that we saw came Friday in the last 24 hours. You see there on the left-hand side of the screen, you know, we've fallen from 43,000 US dollars to... 36,000 US dollars per token on Bitcoin, not that quick, uh, you know, very quickly. Uh, so I guess the question is, what's the next level that we're watching? I guess 34,500 US dollars per token would represent a 50% decline from that November peak. But there's like quite a close correlation, of course, with crypto related stocks, the two highest profile of which on Friday were Coinbase and to a certain extent, Robinhood, Coinbase, biggest drop on record since it listed last year, down more than 13%, closing at the lowest level since it listed last year. And a similar story for Robinhood, dropping 5%, of course, that also tied to the equity markets. 
closing at the lowest level since it listed last year. And we've seen these things move in lockstep. We have asked the question, of course, if Bitcoin, for example, is an inflation hedge. But what we know about these kind of exchanges is that volatility has been good for them when they've reported earnings. But I love to look at these two indexes. These might be new to you, Caroline. Let me know. The Bloomberg Grayscale Future of Finance Index is 22 companies across the world of disruptive technologies, blockchain, crypto-related currency uh, companies. And it's a really interesting gauge because when you put it alongside the Bloomberg Galaxy Crypto Index, which of course is largely Bitcoin and Ethereum, but some other of the larger market value tokens as well, you can see that kind of symmetry in the way they've moved year to date. We've lost about a trillion dollars of value across crypto uh, since that November peak. You know, much of it coming in Bitcoin. Where do we go from here? It's a time to take a pause, take a breath. It's been a very long week. It has been, Ed. Take a breath, maybe something stronger as well. We thank you. Meanwhile, we want to stick on the crypto implications, the slump that we're seeing. Is it time to buy the dip? Lee Drogan's with us. He's the general partner and chief information officer at Starkiller Capital, cryptocurrency hedge fund, one of the key thought leaders in this space, Lee, therefore. And I I'm really interested in what you're seeing in terms of why people aren't buying at the moment, why there is no catalyst to decide that, you know, we, the debate has always been out as to whether this is an inflation hedge, whether it's digital gold, whether it's just a risk asset that appears to be trading like at the moment. Where do you stand in as to what point the price gets so low that retail institutional comes into play? Yeah, don't be mistaken by the kind of libertarian gold bug, you know, Bitcoin, holders this is not an inflation hedge this is a risk asset up and down it's an even more you know it's even more of a risk asset now that most of the crypto market cap is ethereum solana and all sorts of other stuff that is basically just technology where we're pulling forward massive assumptions of global growth into the present and this is why, you know, the market caps for all of these coins vacillate within a massive range. And that's why at Starkiller, we run a momentum-oriented strategy because it's just momentum all the time. Now, one of the really important aspects of that strategy and what we look for to call tops and bottoms is basically the volume profile. This market is largely retail-driven still. The inflow of that retail capital is a persistent TWAP bid on the market. They're throwing market orders at the thing every day. When that volume disappears, these things are basically illiquid. And without those bids, you know, you're, you're seeing what happens right now. And that volume has been gone for a while now, which is why we've basically been in cash for a number of weeks and hedged, you know, even before that. At some point, Yes, the drawdowns will get so significant that we'll want to bid again. 31,000 is kind of a number that, you know, we're looking at. I'd be surprised if we don't get there uh, at some point. It may not be in a straight line, but I'd be surprised if we don't get there. Um, and at that point, you know, you should see some support come into the market. Is it totally possible that we have another 80 or 90 percent drawdown in the asset class? Yes, that is 100 percent possible here. Why? Has the retail bid evaporated of late? It's a great question. I think that's more tied up in the macro-oriented environment. I think, yes, rates are, you know, one piece of it. I think there's also just people went back to work and they stopped sitting at mm -hmm. home trading. 
there, there are a lot of different pieces to that that are more macro oriented than, you know, cryptocurrency specific. What about your own view on where in the asset class you get into? Because you can play the space in many ways. Perhaps there are not as many ETFs as people would like in the United States, but there's certainly, you know, the right blockchains, the micro strategies, the ways of in which you can take a, a stock market view on crypto, or indeed there are the coins themselves and not just Bitcoin, but going through the whole range of DeFi and the like. Where are the opportunities from an asset class perspective? So the way that we look at equities that are kind of crypto tied or most of them are associated with, with what we kind of term the casino. Mm -hmm. And during a raging crypto bull market where all of this retail flow is coming in, you absolutely want to own the casino. You want to own Coinbase. You want to own Robinhood. You want to own a bunch of those other names that are facilitators and picks and shovels. Right now, when that volume is gone, absolutely not. And that goes for the cryptocurrencies themselves, too. All of the lending protocols, all of the decentralized exchanges, you don't want to be anywhere near those things because there's just no volume right now. And to your perspective, what point do we stop being so beholden on retail investors for the volume? Because I thought again and again, 2020, 2021 was about the institutional player coming in. Where are they? The institutions are here. You know, we we have a pretty big firm um, and there are more coming. You've seen all the capital that Andreessen and other venture firms have raised. Here's the issue and why I don't think we're going to see a slowdown in the volatility, you know, anytime soon. In equities, there's basically a buyer of last resort at some reasonable multiple because market participants, you know, in history have basically agreed that Apple's not going to trade at five times earnings. That would be crazy. And if it does, it's going to trade there for a day and then it's going to bounce hard because there's a buyer of last resort at that multiple. In crypto, because the assumptions that we're pulling forward from future growth are so extreme, there is no buyer of last resort. Things can go down 90 or 95%, and that would be completely rational, just as rational as them going up 100 times over the course of you know, a six-month period. Both of those things are completely rational, and that's just the market that we're going to have to deal with. Lee Drogan, we thank you for taking a moment out of what is probably a pretty busy day, and unfortunately for anyone doing crypto, a busy weekend too. General Partner and CIO at Starkiller Capital, we thank you. Meanwhile, a rejection for microstrategy. Now, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, says the firm can't strip out Bitcoin's wild swings from the unofficial accounting measures it touts to investors. Now, the enterprise software maker, remember, that's actually what it is, said back in 2020 that it was buying and holding Bitcoin and that it was one of its key business strategies. But it used non-GARP measures to show that its income would have been if it didn't have to impair the volatile cryptocurrency, which the SEC has objected to. Now, coming up, the power of the marketing in the digital era. What works, what doesn't, how the best brands empower instead of disrupting, and, well, maybe some lessons learned from Peloton. This is Bloomberg.
Apple fans will likely have to wait a little bit longer than expected to get their hands on Apple's first mixed reality headset to compete with Meta's Oculus. The iPhone maker had planned to reveal the new device as early as this June at WWDC and then release it later this year. But the company has been facing some development challenges related to the device overheating, camera technology, and a new operating system. That means that an intro as early as the end of this year or early next year with a wider consumer release in 2023 is more likely. The headset is planned to have super fast M1 Pro-like chips, immersive audio and speaker technology, and capabilities for media consumption, gaming, and communication. The headset will be pricey, however, and probably cost well north of $1,500. The product will be Apple's first big new bet since the Apple Watch launched seven years ago, and it should enable an all new class of applications and a developer ecosystem through an onboard app store. Apple then plans to use WWDC 2023 to engage VR and app developers to write software. The first headset, however, is only the beginning for Apple's ambitions in the space. The company is planning a standalone augmented reality headset as a follow-up later this decade. I'm Mark Gurman. This is Power On. Don't forget, you can subscribe to Mark's weekly Power On newsletter at Bloomberg.com. Let's talk about Peloton. It's been trying to push through the pain of slowing sales. The stock rebounding slightly after CEO John Foley vowed to slash costs, which he said could include, unfortunately, job cuts as the company looks to, quote, reset production levels for sustainable growth. Peloton, of course, reeling from a slowdown triggered by customers returning to basically a more normal life, perhaps, including traditional gyms. Foley also addressed reports that the company had temporarily shut down production, saying the info is incomplete, out of context, and not reflective of Peloton's strategy. Hmm. I want to stay on the topic of Peloton because my next guest has a few thoughts as to why the company has struggled so much of late from a marketing perspective. Joining me now, Jeff Rosenblum. He is the founding partner of Questus, a digital advertising agency. He's also the author of a new book, Exponential, Transform Your Brand by Empowering Instead of Interrupting. Jeff, welcome to Bloomberg Technology. And I mean, before we get on to the ind individual expertise of the book and what you're, the story you're telling, what's the recipe for Peloton? What's gone so horribly wrong in terms of the way they talk to the consumer? Yeah, I think the Peloton story can be broken up into sort of a tale of two cities, the rise and the fall. And they're both, really, they're both really highly interrelated. So during the rise, what they did is they empowered their audience, right? It wasn't new technology. It wasn't new communication. What they were able to do is say, let's connect these stationary bikes to streaming media and empower people. Let's give them the right content at the right place at the right time and improve their lives. With that, they were able to get sort of the low-hanging fruit. But I think the big question now is what's going on? And the issue is they, they're not playing offense with their brand. Think about what happened just a few weeks ago when there was the Sex in the City reboot mm. and all of a sudden the stock price went down 4% in one day because somebody died on this show because they were using the Peloton bike. Well, a company with a $10 billion market cap, they shouldn't have that kind of impact from a fictitious scene on a show that very few people are aware of and very few people have actually seen. So what I think they really need to get back to is playing offense with their messaging, 
communicating to people what makes their product different, what makes their product better. Because it's clearly a great product, mm -hmm. but once you get past the low-hanging fruit, it gets a little bit harder. Yeah, because I think for many, you know, who use it avidly, they didn't care. They still knew they loved their product, but it's about the messaging to the new user. And talk to us, therefore, about, you know, the ways in which, who would you say has had the perfect strategy over the years as you, as CEO of Questus, has really analyzed which businesses get it so right? Well, I think the poster child for the company that really does it right is Patagonia. Mm. And I always look at the world through the advertising lens. And what they do is they don't use traditional interruptive advertising. They create immersive content. They empower people, they educate people to let them understand how they can defend the environment better. But I think as effective as Patagonia is, a lot of people sort of misanalyze it. They think it's a green story. And brands need to realize people don't wake up in the morning expecting every brand to hug the trees and save the manatees. It's about empowering people. It's about improving people's lives one small step at a time in an authentic way. But what was interesting about Patagonia is perhaps it got hijacked to its own degree by tech bros, by banking bros. I remember all the ones where Patagonia was sort of stopping people buying, so, you know, companies ordering their clothing. Was that the right tactic to, to reclaim their messaging, not let it be taken away from them in some way? It's a very bold maneuver, and I think that's why Patagonia succeeds. They're bold over and over and over again. I mean, at one point, they took over their entire website with a message that said, don't buy this jacket. <laughs> and they literally talked people out of buying more products from them because they wanted to educate people about manufacturing byproducts and garbage from consumerism. So boldness is the way to go, and I think that's what's missing with Peloton, returning to that example is they're just not bold with their external advertising. They're mm. relying on 30-second spots, and that's just not enough. Jeff, what about the means of communication and also uh, the ramifications there? We're seeing at the moment, you know, the ups and the downs of the likes of TikTok. We just think of some of the... I don't even want to pay lip service to it, but sort of how, how vitriolic and sort of in some ways negative TikTok can become against one particular human being, for example, as we've seen. How... How are you seeing companies embracing the right format for their messaging? Yeah, that's a really fun question. And I think the advertising, excuse me, the automotive industry really opens our eyes to it because there's published research. The typical person spends 13 hours on their journey. Once they decide they want to buy a new car, 13 hours before they complete the purchase. So most brands are really focused in on, A, a few seconds in the beginning of the journey through TV or through your example, like, let's try to hit people with a bunch of TikTok messages. The real answer is, how do we find what people really are looking for? And it doesn't need to be superficial messages. And we don't need to use interruptions on TV or TikTok or whatever new platform is out there. Let's understand the journey and exactly what people are looking for so we can bring meaning in value to that communication flow. Really fascinating expertise at the right time when we need it. Jeff Rosenbaum, CEO of Questus, but of course, author of his new book, Go and Have a Look, Exponential. That's the lessons learned as to how to transform your brand with empowerment. Meanwhile, coming up, how to make sure women-founded startups get the funding they need. We're gonna talk empowerment there as well with Astia CEO, Sharon Fosmek.
to talk about their latest report on what needed to happen to level the playing field. An exclusive interview for Bloomberg Technology. That's next. So the age-old question, how do female founders get a larger piece of the investment pie after a recent pitch book report showing that women founders secured still only 2% of venture capital in the US in 2021? Now, it's the smallest share since 2016. Conversation is more relevant than ever. So let's bring in Astia into this conversation for their insight. Dedicated to leveling the investment playing field and just releasing well, some really interesting findings from a three-year pilot program launched to make sure their investment flows are more diverse. Astia CEO and Managing Director Sharon Vosnek joins us now. And fascinating, it's almost a mere culpa moment for you. And that's what's so in enticing about this story because you launched this pilot program in reaction to the fact that you realized there was racial bias baked into some of your investment decision-making. Absolutely. And Caroline, thank you again for having me on for this conversation. You're absolutely right. It's a male couple moment. Uh, the reading is well worth doing if you're an investor out there. It was completely humbling to be an organization that for 20 years thought it had uh, removed bias from its investment process to learn, only learn that actually when you intersect gender and race, we had just as much of a problem as other organizations. And to that point, you then sort of look at trying to fix that. From the immediate, like, <gasps> I can't believe this has occurred, what, what, what do you then put in place to be like this? Was it assertive action? What was it that you needed to do? It actually was, and your, by the way, your inhale is exactly what my inhale was. It was a very public moment when we discovered it. it as you rightly point out, it was a dinner party hosted for the companies that we did not invest in, but we thought were best in class, and 80% of those CEOs were black. Then I, you know, feeling kind of smug in that moment of inclusion at that fantastic dinner, reflected on our portfolio, which had zero black CEOs within it. But the, here were the companies we had passed on, but were exceptional. We are hosting the dinner to catch an update on them in case we should invest now. Um, you're right, we dove right in. Uh, day two, uh, I call day one the dinner. Day two was a really hard moment for us organizationally. We called the whole team together, had a very frank conversation about the time, the, the finding at the dinner. And then we did the hard work of looking at our personal data. You know, you mentioned that in the market, something's happening that it's not allowing venture to flow. Fine, that's all interesting and well and good. But what we did was dove into our own data and made in this report um, our actions and our findings very public because we believe it's part of the solution. Okay, so three years since the pilot launched, you're yeah. doing the learnings, your portfolio is now how much people of color? The Astia Fund is 50% black female CEOs. Fair enough that we only have four companies right now, but it's through the work, hard work we did that we were even able to deploy that. The uh, direct investment program called Asti Angels, 25% of their investments post the learnings uh, are into black female CEOs. You know, fundamentally what we had to do was acknowledge that while our sourcing and screening and assessments of the businesses were hugely uh, 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 inclusive 
and we had removed bias in that, where we had not removed bias, where we had failed to appreciate, was truly at that final moment of investment decision-making in private equity or in specifically in venture capital relies a huge deal on that personal conversation and the gut check. And that's where we found that our gut check had bias built into it. And we had to find very thoughtful and process-driven ways to remove the gut check from our investment decision-making. Sounds counterintuitive, but it's actually the hard work that we had to do. We're better investors for it. Our performance not only continues to be exceptional, it's hugely inclusive of women of color. Really important work. What, what was it at the gut check moment that was stopping you? Was it the fact that, I mean, was it because you weren't from similar backgrounds that you couldn't understand, you weren't getting the understanding that you that you wanted yeah. and therefore how are you ensuring that you're going geographically where you need to go, how you're ensuring that the pipeline is where you need it to be? The unfortunate thing about bias is that it's hidden in all sorts of uh, what I call the softer sciences. Uh, and it's not as easy as it was exactly this. But I'll give you examples of some of the differences. Mm. One was the questions asked at the point of investment. Yeah. When we measured the questions asked, the black women were asked what they had achieved with the capital they've, been, they've raised so far. Our white women tended to be asked about the potential of their business, where they were taking it, the opportunity for investing. So you can see how just that subtle distinction, very subtle, right, nuanced. So what we had to change yeah. was we are rigorous about the questions we asked. We do not deviate from the questions based upon the entrepreneur, but instead we have rigor, uh, I call it investment rigor in everything, including the final decision at the point of investment. Really fascinating. Thank you so much, Sharon, for spending some time. We've all got to gut check ourselves and think deeper, work harder. Sharon Vosmek, Astia CEO and Managing Director, we thank you. Have a wonderful weekend. Stay well all. In fact, that does it for the edition of Bloomberg Technology, but some breaking news for you because as we go to break, as we go to this weekend, crypto taking another leg lower. Check out what's happening in terms of the price of Bitcoin. We haven't seen these levels since July. 36,000 is where we've currently broken through. Look to those technical levels. Wall Street Week is up next with my colleague David Weston. This is Bloomberg. Hi, I'm Randy, and this is Dave. We're the founders of Bombas, the most comfortable socks in the history of feet. So comfortable, we sold and donated millions of pairs. To sell and donate a lot of socks, we became obsessed with comfort. We reinvented the sock from the ground up, adding comfort innovations along the way. It worked. People tried them, loved them, told their friends about them. Helping us sell and donate millions of pairs. Try them now at bombas.com slash comfy and get 20% off your first order. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash comfy. 
The motto for 2022 is out with the old, in with the bold. And if you're ready to revamp your career, your relationships, or your money this year, check out Modern Life. It's a new podcast and newsletter from Fidelity Investments with fresh perspectives from people defining success on their own terms and tips to help you do the same. Search Modern Life wherever you find your podcast to follow and subscribe. Keep in mind that investing involves risk. The value of your investment will fluctuate over time and you may gain or lose money. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC, 900 Salem Street, Smithfield, Rhode Island, 02917. Huh? Yeah. Yeah, so, so I mean, I'm going to watch Daredevil. Me and Julian probably will. And yeah. prob- I, I might have to watch Punisher on my own because everybody else has seen it. But. I haven't. I still, wanna, I, I still, believe it or not, still have not seen it. Well, we got so many shows we watch together. When will we find time? Shit, who knows? Yeah. I will be checking it out. But also, you know what we need to check out? You guys! What's going on? What is happening? Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Nerd Word, where the nerd is the word. Nerd, 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 the word. Nerd, 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 Yeah, so any of that, I am Hapless Bucket. I am Guy Man Brodog. I am Fireball. And I am a Yes, we still have a Jake. Jake isn't here. He has called in via cell phone. Um, So if you never hear, if you don't hear Jake's opinion, it is because he probably decided to walk away from his mic for a second. (laughs) So, or thinks somebody didn't turn their phone down. That That deserves a big old fat old one of. One of those. Right. <laughs> I mean, but it was the Spider-Man sound effect. Right? I mean, Let's it's be legit. grateful of that. It's legit. <laughs> this is true. Um, so starting off, how was everybody's weekend? Fireball. I, sir, had the most fantastic weekend I ever had. And uh, again, I want to give a big shout out to Gabo for the dope shirt. Thank you. That is a really super, super dope shirt. I like that shirt. I'm. You may not make it home because... I might steal that short off your Well, course. this is a 3X, so it's going to be a little tight on you. Well, as you can see, I am gaining weight, so <laughs> over time, I will, I'll fit into it. <laughs> God, man, how was your weekend? My weekend was filled with toys. We went and got a bunch of new toys, and I'm, I'm pretty satisfied with my purchases. Um, and it was dope getting to spend that time with, with, a, with a guest, you know? It was pretty cool. We had a yep, good time. We had a blast. Yeah. Jake. How was your weekend? Uh, you know, it was busy, uh, but I had some time to finally sit down and start watching Daredevil. Mm-hmm. So uh, I've been really enjoying that. I've made it through the first season over the last week, and uh, going to be starting season two here probably uh, sometime next week. Nice. Nice. Heck yeah. Well, speaking of during the week, um, actually... There's a couple of things that I've been hearing about during the week. Uh, Activision is one of them, but I've also seen a lot of RuneScape stuff coming up recently. And I know you, sir, are the king. And you've how how many accounts? You have one account, right? I've had two. Uh, my original account got banned because I named him Wiener Hair. <laughs> um, <laughs> someone narked on me. They didn't like it. They banned my account. So my second account is the one I've ran with for actually 18 years on and off. Okay, wow. first of all, yeah. how old were you when you started it? Um, with- I started two years after it was made. I've It's been around 20 years. And Jeez. 
I started 18 years ago. I'm 42, so you do math because I'm not as smart. <laughs> <laughs> now, what is it about uh, RuneScape? And it seems that we're still live on YouTube. But oh, well, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. YouTube, right. that's fine. But um, the, I don't know much about RuneScape. Do you want Do you want to kind of give us like a, an idea of what RuneScape is? Yeah, absolutely. Um, for those who don't play, uh, it is your basic MMORPG. Uh, you, you just get on and you skill build. It's a big skill builder. So every skill that you learn, every couple of levels you gain in it, you learn new abilities that benefit you in your gameplay, and you, it just continues to expand. The game gets bigger and bigger the more and more you play. There's the more and more you can do. 18 years invested off and on, and I still don't have one skill in level 99. And I think they go up to 120 now. Jeez. So, yeah, there's a lot of time you can play that game, a lot of skills to build, hundreds of quests. It's just highly immersive. Now... What kind of games does this game compare to? Um, there's, well, in my opinion, this isn't a fact of any way. I, d I don't want to hear any arguments in the comments <laughs> about it. This is just kind of how I see it. Yeah. But I, if you take, like, World of Warcraft, Diablo, and take some elements from, like, Skyrim and mash them all together into a, a slightly dumbed down in the graphics style overhead RPG. Mm hmm. That's what you get. That's that's a pretty good comparison. Fair? Yeah. yeah. I mean, our our man here, Guy Man Bro Dog, he has an account as well. Um, he it, plays a little yeah. bit. Uh, our good friend Gabo, who's usually in the comments talking to us, she uh, she has an account and plays a lot with me. Um, great game. If you haven't checked it out, it's free to play, um, but you can pay for a membership, which gives you three hundred percent more things to do. It's so much fun. Have Worth you, it. Have you played it before, Jake? Uh, yeah, I played, uh, I talked to Josh yeah. about this, I think, a few weeks ago. I had an account when it was super popular back in 2000, and, God, there have been, like, seven or yeah. eight, I think, is when it first came out. That's and, about uh, right. I just had so many other extracurriculars and other things going on that I just never, uh, I never really dedicated the time to it. Got screwed over early on as a beginner, and, uh, <laughs> was like, Wow. That's how the community is. Okay. <laughs> it, it's come a long way since then. They've done a lot to stop people from being able to screw others yeah. over. So it, it's easier and better now, for sure. And we see now that Gabo is in here. What's hey, going Gabo. on, Gabo? How does everything sound? Does things sound all right? Things <clears throat> look all well, right. I ain't worried about how it looks because we got these two beautiful people and a me on here, so it at least it balances out. <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep it pretty. We'll keep but, it pretty. Um, see, I... <laughs> I never really got wanted to get into uh, RuneScape because I know that you you guys are big fans of Diablo. That those are never really my things. Like the closest thing to Diablo that I ever played was the uh, Marvel Ultimate Alliance. That's a great game too, though. Those were the only ones, the only because of the characters. Right. Uh, what the hell are you doing, Jake? Snacking. <laughs> <laughs> the luxury of not actually being on camera. Yeah, but that still comes through on the mic. Jeez. What are you doing, Josh? <laughs> you don't want to know. <laughs> He's hitting me on the laptop. Take your guess. I got that. Uh, I got that Twitch stream pulled up. <laughs> <laughs> nice and tight. Your mom is watching. Put that 
<laughs> she she doesn't pay attention to what I do on the interwebs. She knows better. <laughs> but anyway, I um, have a question for all three of you. Yes. Okay. While we're talking about RuneScape, how that's sort of like a <coughs> slow grind sort of game, mm-hmm. got to work for your levels and stuff. Do you guys prefer that type of game as opposed to like a linear story game that you can beat in a few days? Yeah, I do. Mm. I prefer the long dragged out skill builders. See, th- it really depends for me because I I'm a variety gamer. The only one I'm just now starting to get into online gaming, and I'm just now starting to dive into more first person shooters uh, as opposed to like you know just like the solo ones. But <clears throat> excuse me, Cabo says right. nice shirt by the way. So. Um, I, it, it really depends because I really enjoy stories. I love the story. But sometimes you do just want to, like, run around and do absolutely nothing for a while. And yeah. just, like, skill build and see how good you can make your character. So that way when you do the story next time, you can just breeze through that shit. So it just really depends. It really depends. Everybody, so it if, depends if, if you really. were stuck with one type of game, though, which one would you pick? I'm going for the grinders. The like grinders. Skyrim and... I love those kind of games. They okay. they have so much replayability. They do. When they're linear, you can only play through a story so many times before you're sick of the scenery, sick of the enemies. But if it's open world, as you get better, there are more and more things you can do. It's an yeah. expanding game, and I just I love that. That's how I could play RuneScape for 18 years. Okay, that's fair. I'm with it. Two things, Jake. Uh, I'll take uh, I'll take the story games, man. Like a lot of games nowadays, they're they're open world or they they have an open approach to it. So there's still some replayability into it. I find that grinders, you kind of hit that level of uh, the character you play. Like for example, when I played Skyrim, I was a huge fan of being an archer. So you know, once you max out stealth and you max out your archery and your uh, your short blade skill tree like there's just not a whole lot more to do with it it's not very fun when you're running around and one hitting <laughs> everything yeah. from behind you know? <laughs> um, but i um uh, but like i think of like games like uncharted or even the last of us i went back and was replaying the last of us on ps3 there's so many different ways to approach how to go about making your way through a situation in the last of us yeah, I gotta agree with you, Jake. I prefer those types of games too. Hmm. You might be alone yeah, on this one. One, one really? that comes to mind um, when you say like replayability in story-based games, I think of Horizon Zero Dawn. Oh my god! Like that, it, yeah, it was open world, game. and it was it. It's enough. There's enough in there for you to want to replay it a bunch of times. And obviously, like The Last of Us 2, that's my favorite game of all time. I love that game same, with all my heart. Here. You look and, like you came out of that game. <laughs> For those who have visual, he and, looks like a character. But. And it, like even in The Last of Us, they still have enough in it for replayability. Like I found myself having a blast with the infinite ammo mode. Oh, yeah. Like, you have to get a certain a amount of points blast. to unlock that, <laughs> it, and it makes the whole game really different. Yeah, it really and different is. enough. You know what I mean? It does. I'd have to agree because I just beat it on my stream. You can check it out on my YouTube or watch me stream it. Hapless luck, it whatever. Anyway, um, was that seventh time now? No. Uh, yeah, I played it seven times since it came out last year. No, twenty twenty came out in twenty twenty. But yeah, I have played it seven times, and. I, I absolutely love it. Not to say that I don't love open world games, 
at some point you just get tired of having to travel from point A to point B, mm-hmm. which is all the way on the other side of the map. Sometimes you just get tired of it. Sometimes you just want to breeze through something that's just like you have this path to go. You don't have to worry about searching and hunting. You got You can just bulldoze your way through whatever you want, whatever it is you're so doing. So it's basically all mood, whatever you're feeling that day. Yeah, it really is. Because sometimes I could be playing games like Zero Dawn or um, what other um, Ghost Returnal. Ghost of Tsushima. I would say Spider-Man. Yeah. Yeah, I would Spider-Man. Count Spider-Man. That's for real. I mean, that's it's awesome. open that's... world, but it's not an MMORPG. Right. I mean, so yeah. The fact that it's one player yeah. and it's got a pretty linear story. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, the story. It is has to be linear. open world to be Spider-Man, but yeah. it is definitely one of those story games. Yeah, yeah. So, speaking of these games, um, I know that some that some of the games that I played back in the day. Or, pardon me, burp. <laughs> Almost, I know some of the things off the top of my head that I can think of some of the most impossible games that I've ever played in my entire life. And I want to see which ones that you are talking about. Jake, uh, what is the hardest <laughs> classic retro game that you have ever played? Hardest classic retro game. Uh, to this day, I still have not eaten Mike Tyson's punch out. Oh need, man! Number one, you need to speak up. Get, get put your put your face I, close to the phone. <laughs> uh, yeah, Mike Tyson's punch out, man. Uh, that was the. Uh, there we go. Time. Yeah, that's that. Wherever you're at right now, start. Stay talking right there. <laughs> stay away from the speaker. <laughs> Gotcha. Yeah, Punch Out, man. Going back all the way to like 1986, 1987. Great game. Uh, been playing that game since I was a little kid. Uh, used to play it all the time with my dad, and we would go through the different, you know, uh, championship rings and bouts and whatever. Uh, just could never get past. Uh, can finally get past uh, Mr. Dream, but can't get past Mike. <laughs> <laughs> that, that one hit. Uh, that one hit KO is just straight up unfair. Yeah, completely. <laughs> See, that was one of the games that I try to avoid it. I mean, I played it. I played Mike Tyson's Punch Out, but that was one that I, I. It was okay to me. It was not one that I wanted to try to pursue to to get to the point where it's like, oh, this is this is impossible. This is hard. But I just moved on past. Like, this is not fun for me because I never really got into <laughs> boxing, so I just moved on past it. Fireball, what's the hardest game that you ever played? Like, the classic retro games. Well, to be dead honest, <clears throat> excuse me, one that actually always gave me trouble, and a lot of people think it's funny, but Earthworm Jim. One and Earthworm two. Earthworm Jim. Really? I, yeah, they were great games. Definitely up there on my favorites list. But I never could finish them, and I don't think I ever whooped them. Really? Yeah. And looking back on it, it's crazy that I didn't try harder, I guess, but... Yeah, I never beat them. <laughs> I, I, that surprises me because I've beaten them. Yeah, as a kid, I've beaten them. I didn't own them, but whenever I had borrowed them for a friend, I got I got a chance to play them and beat them. But wow, I was yeah. surprised. That was one. Well, that was two technically that really gave me a struggle. Give me your gamer card back. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what What do you think? I I think I know what you're gonna say, but please enlighten us. What game Who, was that? Me? You? Yes, you. The hardest game. I'm pretty sure some people can uh, can definitely, you know, feel me on this one. 
the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game. You know, mm-hmm. the, the one, the side-scroller, not the cool one from the arcade, not two. The original one on the NES. That son of a bitch was hard. That was <laughs> hard. To this day, I still have not gotten past... Once you get into the dam and start swimming and yep. try to pass the C4, I, I still haven't... I, I still haven't beaten it. <laughs> I did a video game pitch meeting with uh, our friend uh, Games and More. Mm-hmm. Check him out. Check him out, yes. Um, I did a pitch meeting for that. And after I did the pitch meeting, did research, watched videos, I was like, you know what? Now that I'm older, and now that I'm wiser, and now that I'm better at video games, I'm going to go back and try and play it. So I pulled up an emulator... I started playing it, and I'm like, this is just as hard as it was when I was a fucking kid. How in the world did anybody beat this? I've seen, I've, I've been on Reddit, I've been in the comment section seeing like, oh, this game isn't that hard. I'm like, what kind of Chinese child prodigy are you to be able to beat this game? I know. That's great. I, I, eventually, I'll probably go back to it, but Right now, that game can go fuck itself. <laughs> Guy Man, yes. what about you? So, for me, retro games are kind of newer for you guys. You know, yeah. like, the first games that come to mind, I would, I would say really anything on the PS1 and before is retro for me. Yeah. Crash Bandicoot. Really? That's, that's Crash Bandicoot though. is hard. Yeah, <laughs> That is a hard game. Now, are you talking about the the remake, or are you talking about the original? I, I didn't really play the remake enough okay. to, to really feel the difference, but, it I mean, they might have made it a little easier on during the remake. But God, no. It's, it's God, no. <laughs> it's just, like, the janky camera angles, the controls. Like, when I played it, I didn't even have, like, the joystick. It was just the four buttons mm, on the PlayStation controllers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it is... It's it's grueling work, and I don't yeah. I don't want my game to feel like it's work, you know. <laughs> um, so I never I never got through Crash Bandicoot. Wow. And then the other one that comes to mind, and you could probably atone to this Resident Atone Resident Evil Two, the the first one. The first like the one before the also the reboot. Yes. Oh yeah, no, that's hard. That was that, the camera angles, tough. the aiming mechanics. One. That's what made it the hardest, trying to walk and navigate and shoot, mm-hmm. and the controls were so difficult. And it took oh them God. really until Resident Evil 6 to get the aiming mechanics yeah. down. I mean, 4 and 5 got a little they were better, there. but like that game was not easy, and the fact that it was a horror game, mm-hmm. it added oh so yeah. much. Terrified like, the whole time you're trying to navigate yeah. these impossible controls. It, it was really yeah. stressful. I mean, I got through it because the story was so enthralling, but like game. that game is just it's imprinted in my memory from just being that hard now see unlike you when that game came out i was younger i was probably what did that like come out like 92 i believe it was 92 it was definitely before my time so um, 92 94 something like somewhere around there it was early 90s mid 90s and forget my mom got it for me like she didn't get it for me she somehow got it from a friend because I was, she got me my PlayStation. She got me my first PlayStation. And she got it from a friend because her friend said, hey, maybe your son should try this. He likes games. I played it for about a day. Like, you know, as a young kid, I'm sitting there enthralled. Like, oh, this is so cool. Shooting zombies. Yay. Hooray. And then I got to the part 
where the hallway where you first meet the liquor. It was before you meet the liquor. I already know where when you're you walk down about. that hallway yeah. and the fucking zombies bust through the wall and yes. try to grab you. I shit and scream <laughs> every time. And then when I met the liquor, I was done with that game. <laughs> I didn't beat that game until I was older. <laughs> That's awesome. That's funny. Have you had any experiences with Resident Evil Two, Jake? Uh, you know, I wasn't really big into the horror movie games. <clears throat> Uh, excuse me, Jacob. I I think we're losing connection with you. <laughs> Click. <laughs> uh, the uh, yeah, I didn't really play any of the horror games back on the PlayStation One. So my first experience with Resident Evil was uh, RE Six. Really? Oh wow! Yeah. Wow. Um, okay, that's a good first experience. I mean, yeah, so I loved oh. Six. I thought Six was yeah, awesome. it was a good game. So you picked up on a good one. Yeah, Resident Evil Six was. It's pretty good. I really enjoy Resident Evil Six. I'm supposed to be streaming that some to- some point, but well, well, that's that's for a different for a different day. Yeah. But um, for the new day, what 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 you got over there, guy man? For the new day. <laughs> oh, I was looking at your notes because. Oh yeah yeah. Yeah, actually, yeah. Speaking of new day, I'm. I got into this conversation with uh, our buddy Q. And he mentioned to me, before I even got a chance to sit my morning coffee, talking about Activision. Now, Activision was bought out by Microsoft, which is a big step for, for the Microsoft gaming community. However, Microsoft Activision is more of a publisher than it is like the designer of the games, mostly. Right. Pretty sure there's some games that they have. Like Back in the day, they had the original Spider-Man for PlayStation 1 mm-hmm. and Tony Hawk. Um, they also, did, they also uh, published Sekiro. Which uh, came out in 2019, I think. It's a good game. A very good game. Very, very excellent game. But I think it's cool. I think it's cool that that, that Microsoft has bought out Activision. But I think that it's a, this is just me personally. I think, but I think that it's a lot less than everyone's making it out to be. Mm-hmm. It's Bes- not going to make that much of a difference. I don't think. It really isn't. Uh, I get it. Bethesda bought it out. That's, that's, that's a different story because yeah. Bethesda's got a lot of relevant games. That yes. things, games that are still happening, games that are still being made, uh, games that people still claim are like the greatest games, mm-hmm. or at least in conversation of greatest games. Yeah. I mean, the biggest thing that Activision has, I think, yeah, Crash Bandicoot, Spyro. Spyro is not really relevant anymore, it, unless really. they decide to redo it, remake it. Crash. They could make him relevant again. Yeah, they could make him relevant again. Crash. You know, they had Crash Bandicoot, that, that rebirth, and they already had Crash Bandicoot 4, which is insanely tough. I don't know if they you, all are. No, <laughs> yeah. oh, 4 is. Trumps them? Yeah, 4 is Trumps hard. Them. And I'm, when I mean hard. I'm talking take took too much Vicodin. You've had it for over four hours hard. Like that is a crazy hard game. Vicodin don't make you hard, <laughs> not, but not Vicodin, I, I Viagra. Knew, I knew what you meant though. I knew. Vi- I Viagra for Yeah. <laughs> they, thank you for fixing that. No problem, buddy. Jake, thoughts on Viagra? <laughs> <laughs> It's an interesting buyout situation. Um, it definitely 
it's one of those things where it catches eyes uh, with it being an Activision and Blizzard. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you know, Blizzard owns uh, World of Warcraft and yep. uh, StarCraft. Uh, that still, those servers are still going on. It's been a really long time since I've touched StarCraft um, and, uh, and, and Diablo. But taking a look at the IP list that was uh, provided by a website I just pulled up here, I, most of this stuff, like, they're dead IPs or intellectual properties. Like, uh, Overwatch is a huge grab. Uh, obviously, the Call of Duty stuff is huge. Yeah. Um, they haven't really done anything with Crash Bandicoot since Crash Bandicoot 4, but, like, Guitar Hero, there hasn't been a new Guitar Hero game in decades. They were talking um, about bringing that back, which I'm excited for. Yeah, that buyout would probably bring it back. The, uh, uh, I mean, this list is super interesting. Looking at it, I mean, most of it's most of it's dead and gone. Activision's been really concerned with Call of Duty and yeah. <laughs> yeah. moving all their studios towards you know uh, the the Warzone and the different games that they put out every year, which makes sense. It's it's a lot of work to develop a game today. You have to have multiple studios working on it, but I mean. I I don't know. <laughs> I actually, I mean, now that you mention it, most of these having like all these companies or all these names that have been uh, dead in the water for some time, with Microsoft having them now, there may be kind of more of a push to do some of these games with these names mm-hmm. attached. Like maybe uh, maybe like bring back more Crash Bandicoot yeah. or more Spyros or more Tony. You know, just so, right. some of the games that we all know and love. So. I can see why it is like a big thing, but also you know, I'm. People may say like I'm a PlayStation head. I love my PlayStation. I absolutely do. But I also am a gamer. I like Xbox. I also like Xbox. I give Xbox fans shit because you know I can because they're my friends. So I'll talk shit with with Q because he likes the Xbox. No big deal. We at the end of the day, we both like playing video games, so it doesn't you're fucking matter. You're, you're on the same team, <laughs> right? So I I can see why PlayStation, uh, like more domestic, not domestic, but more PlayStation Sony fans are upset because you do lose Crash Bandicoot, which has been a PlayStation household name forever. True, and you lose Spyro, but at the same time, you just like. When was the last Spiral game out anyway? Yeah, what was that? Like, when was the last Crash game out anyway? Like, no. five, uh, five, five years ago? You don't well, think that yeah. this is going to mean Call of Duty would now be an Xbox exclusive, No, right? no, I don't think so, no. because that would be dumb. If yeah, you just that made would that, be very dumb. Because um, I was talking with Q. Q actually looked up the analytics. I, I have to look at it myself. He said most of the people who play it are on PlayStation. Mm. So I don't I don't know how true that is. I have to look that up. But I would I would see where they, that that makes sense. But I don't think it would be something that's exclusive because everybody plays it, PC, and PlayStation, yeah. and Xbox. That's true. Back the the quote Q uh, <laughs> in layman's terms, exclusives ain't shit. You know it's the true. world has moved on away from stuff like that. So for Activision and Microsoft, or <laughs> Activision and Microsoft, uh, you know rub their Pretty mitts together and expect a bunch of gamers who have you know nostalgia for uh, Spyro, Crash Bandicoot, uh, she any fifty games that are on this list. Like it's it's gonna alienate an entire fan base and just it's gonna well it's been beneficial now it's gonna be something that'll hurt Microsoft in the long run financially. Yeah. So I mean I I don't foresee uh, any exclusivity going on here now maybe like. 
Crash Bandicoot has four more levels on, yeah. you know, Xbox One. Like, I could see something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, that might I be see. something they would do. Yeah, I could see that too. And I think that's would be the the, the a the where the area that they would head. You know, because I don't think they would make any of those games exclusive. Right. They right. lose money. I mean, that's just a dumb business decision. Not only, I mean, this could be a rumor, and I could be just dumb. But I even I I, I saw a uh, <laughs> I saw a meme, and it made me laugh. It made me hilarious. It made me laugh hilariously, hysterically <laughs> laugh. You know, leave me alone. Fuck you. Saw <laughs> that before I did. So kudos. But um, the meme was a tweet between Microsoft and Sony. Microsoft started off by saying, Xbox Game Pass now come with a PlayStation. PlayStation 5. <laughs> Sony replied, what the hell? Who who authorized this? Underneath it, it said Microsoft. Microsoft replied, shut the hell up, you lazy, or like you uh, bum ass, before I buy your broke ass too. <laughs> and I lost it. I, but what made me curious is I actually looked up what a, would Game Pass come to PlayStation? And I read that there was a possibility. I didn't say that that was going to happen. I can actually look it up right now. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. Um, Game Pass on PS5. Um, so I'm not com- not completely tripping. Um, Who'd have thunk it? In theory, could Xbox Game Pass come to PS5? PlayStation's Game, uh, game Pass rivals could change. So, again, this may be just talk but it could be something to look forward to in the future because their playstation was working on a thing to combat the uh game pass we know we had playstation now mm-hmm. but that wasn't really a competition of thing to yeah, it was just something else it was just something else because they never had any day ones come out so then they just had games that have been out forever or you know came out within the last year or so so they weren't having anything fresh if they did, it'd be gone in a month or two. Right. So, um, I think that's actually pretty cool that thinking about it, Activision. We're hiring at Culver's. That means if you're up for welcoming families with coworkers who feel like family while growing your career in a place you can be proud of, you're our kind of people. So join the Culver's team at Culver's.jobs. And getting bought out is cool, so some things may happen. All these mergers have been I see very it as positive. A good thing. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's always been positive. Two big companies come together; they've been producing amazingness. Look at Disney. It's yeah. Sony. Yeah. And I don't think it really matters much if you're a gamer who plays video games. I know a lot of people will be like, who, who will get complain about Sony? Oh, Sony's got these exclusives. I want to be able to play Ghost of Tsushima. Get a fucking PlayStation and shut up. Or I I want to play Halo. Or I want this these day ones. Get an Xbox. That's what it's been since the beginning. That's it. It's just like, if you want to play these, quit complaining about what it's on. Be a consumer and purchase it. Which is why it would be exciting to see that kind of a thing where there's no more exclusives. Everybody can play everything. I think that's the way it should be. I mean, I think I think games should have exclusives. I, and I think the only reason I think they're still in there is they've got to make their money. There has to be a reason for you to want to buy 
an yeah. Xbox. Because if every if you only have a PlayStation and everything is on PlayStation, there's no reason for you to buy an Xbox. Yeah. Or or vice versa. It's all marketing, really. So yeah. it, I mean, it is, but I also understand there are also preferences. People like Xbox for a specific reason. People like PlayStation for a specific reason. To be honest, without the exclusives, you're really just picking. Do you like the feel of this controller more or this yeah. controller? That's really what it boils down like, to. Because like. The way they're structured, they're fairly similar. Like yeah, dummies could get systems. it. Yeah. They they yeah. both are very easy to navigate, and it's just a system. Yeah. The exclusives are what ties me to PlayStation. Like The Last of Us, my Same. favorite game. I couldn't go without that. I have to have a PlayStation. Yes. But if they go ahead and make it to where exclusives aren't a thing, then they're probably gonna lose money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, there just hasn't been a lot of things to uh, really <laughs> get excited over, you know. I mean, a lot of what the game designers and the industry as a whole is doing is they're trying to have a, a blanket that covers the full map over just putting all their eggs in one basket. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. like, I'm, I'm for exclusivity. I think it's great. It's good if you compare it to something like Disney and the MCU, right? Um I know a lot of MCU fans are upset about how Marvel basically almost went under in the 90s and they took their IPs and they sold it to a bunch of different companies like Fox, Sony, Hasbro. Uh, There's two others that I'm forgetting that Marvel doesn't own the rights for, but those are minor characters that no one really cares about. (laughs) Yeah. Um, it, It gives you a choice. And if everything is across everything, then, I mean, as Julian was saying, you know, you're just buying a system for the sake of owning a system. Yeah. Um, yeah. If I wanted to have a PC, I'd have a $2,500 PC. Yeah, exactly. And which is why I like, you know, I, I like that there are options because pe- some people don't like either one of them. Some people just love straight PC. Yeah. Some people don't like any of those and they just like the Twitch. Or yeah, not Switch. Twitch, the Switch. <laughs> I'm sorry. Hell, People may straight like Oculus. So I, yeah. I, I like the fact that there are options all across the board as far as gaming. Which is all, all, what it comes down to is gaming is about what fits you the best. Xbox is more geared toward the community, more connectivity, more online gaming as opposed to PlayStation, where they're usually sometimes more geared toward solo storytelling type of gaming. Then you got PC, who, like does World of Warcraft, it does all. And then you have, you know, your virtual reality, so... And even the Switch is different. Like, those types of games are all, like, what seems to be geared towards kids. Yeah. And, like, younger audiences. But it's not. So those are different, too. But they're still still not there. I know a lot of adults who are, like, a lot of gamers who are trying to get a Switch. Hell, I want a Switch to put in my office. (laughs) I'm not even going to (laughs) lie. I want one just for Marvel Ultimate Alliance 3. Oh, yep, and that's probably what I would play mostly. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Speaking of gaming, um, just off the top of your head, if you can build... I know this is a random this is a random curveball. I love these. But if you could build a specific type of system, what would your audience be what would this system be geared towards? Fireball go. If I was to create a system a for system. the gaming community. Yes. What type of gaming would it be mostly steered uh, steered well, towards? Well, is my goal to make more money or is my goal to make something that's ideal for me? It's personally? you. This is up to you. Whatever you want. Because if it's a business, I got to do it geared to make money. But if I'm just saying what I would want in a console, if it was designed yes. specifically for me, 
I like the old school consoles, man. I like fucking cartridges. <laughs> really? I want to blow in my game before I put it in. <laughs> you know, I, uh, I love the old school. There was never any issues. It booted right up, you know, obviously without the, you know. Yeah. It had its little technical difficulties, but <laughs> I hate technology. I'm old school. So if I could get games that are graphics like today on a cartridge somehow, that would be my ideal system and I would pay bajillions for it. That's so act, that's interesting. So your target demographic would probably be people like your age. Yeah, probably. If I'm trying like to nostalgic. make nostalgic. Yeah, maybe people. nostalgic. And and also car to be I think to be a little bit more factual, I think cartridges did better than CDs because you'd always have to load up CDs. Usually when you have the cartridges, you put them motherfuckers in. It starts and right up. They, they had the PlayStation 5, Xbox Series X load speed. Yep. <laughs> so, and you got to save your game directly to the cartridge. So you could take that game to another friend's console and play it in it and still have your save data. Yeah. I loved it. I think that's... I think that's, that's Actually, pretty smart. Hopefully, someone doesn't listen to this and be like, "Let's do that," and then steal. I hope they do. I'm buying the system. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you hear that? You already have one consumer buying his own idea. I don't need credit for the idea. Just make it happen. (laughs) Jake, go. Uh, you know, I, I'm not really sure. Actually, you know what? Scratch. Actually, hold on. I want to give everybody a different question. I want to give everybody a different question. Because I done got an answer to that previous question. Well, he got his answer, so he didn't. He didn't start answering this question. So he's gonna get a different question. Jake, if you were to build a game, a specific game, what would that game be geared towards? Like, would it be a first-person shooter, third-person shooter, zombies, no zombies? What would it be? Go. Uh, I think it would go back and appeal to that old retro style. Uh, games that, uh, like Crash Bandicoot, uh, Manzo Kasooie, I mean, even talking about, like, old-school first-person shooters like Wake Man, like, games back in the day, they were fun. Uh, I, I still enjoy gaming when certain things do come out, but, um, some of the things that have happened with the game industry and the way that things are going, I just, I don't know, doesn't really appeal to me a whole lot. <laughs> but, you know... I, I would I would get down with the console that had a lot of games that were like the old school like Banjo Kazooie and all had those old 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 school FPS games. Heck yeah! Nice, Guy Man. Okay, hear me out on this one. I got no. You get a different question. Oh. Everybody gets a different question. Okay. What's my question? Your question is what. Is your main character in any video game? You could place your main character in any video game. What is his? What is his powers and what is his backstory? Go. <laughs> you can build a scenario, but you have to build the main character. So I'm basically building a game real quick. No, you're focusing on the character the though. Character. Right? All okay, right. you, the character is in a zombie apocalypse, and then with the character. I got you. you think about that for a second. We should make this a segment and call it Pop Quiz. I like it. Tell us what you think in the comments. Should we make this a segment and he drop us on a pop <laughs> quiz once per episode or something? I, I like it. It'd be fun. I like these. Being put on the spot is fun. I like it. But anyway, please. My my preferred main character would probably be a really strong chick of some sort. A really strong female lead. Because like, some of my favorite characters in gaming, like... Ellie and Aloy, Laura Croft for that matter, like those games got me because of those strong leads. 
And if I can get a badass girl to, like, be going through the world killing stuff, like, that's like that's going to make brain. for a really good game. Yeah, okay. I'm well, what would, her, what would her backstory be? Her backstory. And well, what would her scenario be, be in? Her scenario? Yeah. Um, you know, I, 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 I really do love zombie stuff. I think a zombie mm -hmm. game would be dope, but that would be a little too similar to Last of Us. I think her scenario would be some sort of involvement in like a conspiracy sort of, you know similar to Kate Bishop in Hawkeye. Okay. Something along those lines, something to where she is now forced to do the things and that's what drives the story. Okay. Push from behind. That's I, that, okay. I'm with it. I like that. Sounds good. That that does sound like a really that sounds like a game that I'd play for sure. Yeah, yeah. It, that sounds fun to me too. Excellent answers, guys. Excellent answers. No. Did did oh yeah, never mind. We're good. What? Yeah, no, I was off page. I'm back. Are you sure? Yeah. <laughs> hey, welcome back. Thank you. <laughs> I slipped away for a second. Welcome to page one. Yeah. Is that where we are? <laughs> that is where we were. I think it's where I got lost at. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. I'm back. So So let us know in the comments what you guys think about those questions. What game would you create if you had the opportunity? Yeah, that would be cool. I'd like to read those. I have a question for you guys. Ooh, okay. Since you were talking about building games and building scenarios and building this and that, when you guys play Minecraft, (laughs) what is the first thing that you build? Is it statues? Is it like a structure, like a house? Like What what is your go-to starting point? Who, who wants to take this one first? Let's let Jake take yeah, it first. Yeah, Jake, we're on the floor yeah, on this one. Jake? Yeah, that's, a, that's an easy one. Uh, I don't Minecraft, man. <laughs> <laughs> I, so I, I don't really have a, a really solid answer for that. But okay. you have friends who do play Minecraft, and I'd probably, I would say, build a house. Yeah. Okay. Touche. But, but you are familiar with it, though, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Just to keep it short and sweet, honestly, every single account I've ever played and made myself, it's the first thing I did was build myself a castle, my own place, and then build outward from there. That's pretty much what I do. So Really? Yeah. Guy man, what do you do? I asked you, fool. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, ki- I'm kind of with Jake. I don't Minecraft. Okay. But I do remember... Minecrafting with you guys during that during that one pe- that one that one time where I'd Minecraft with you guys for hours just because that was just our way of chilling and hanging out. So I'd do that, but I do plan on going to do some Minecrafting soon in the future on some streams. So I think the first thing I do, I would do, is because I remember doing this the first time every time I played, was go and dig. Yeah, dig. just start digging. Yeah, just gathering supplies. I don't I don't know, it's something just relaxing about punching trees for five minutes. <laughs> or digging for cobblestone. Burrowing into the ground. Yeah, burrowing, like... burrowing into the ground and getting lost. For something, some, some reason about that, it's just like, I don't know why. It's, 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 I guess I like the challenge of getting lost yeah. and, and trying to find your way back. I guess I like that. I don't and know. seeing what you find on the way. That's the adventure yeah. of survival mode. That's it in is. a nutshell, yep. Because usually when I play like first-person shooters, not first-person shooters, but when I play uh, open-world games, I'm one of those guys who, if I get sidetracked, it's going to take forever to get me back on the right track. Because mm-hmm. once I get sidetracked, and if that sidetrack takes me to a mission that's 
a side mission that's over here and it's closer than the other one i take that and it just spider webs out in different directions and then like hours later i realize oh wait i'm supposed to be doing this yeah and that's how i feel minecraft is because once i get stuck under underwater or under like you know under the underneath in the caves and stuff mm -hmm. I start being like, oh, how do I get out? And then I start building, you know, throwing down TNTs, and then I blow stuff up, and then I start <laughs> thinking, oh, how much, how big of an explosion can I make? <laughs> it just starts, you know, rabbit trailing. It's a spiral. It yeah. is. Mm -hmm. It is. So, yeah, but I that's do why plan it's a great on, game. I do plan on getting back in there. But speaking of Minecraft, I want to know, other than Jake, because he's a, he's he sucks like I do. We don't play Minecraft, <laughs> but. <laughs> I know you two are artists. You two are, are, are really good artists. I want to know what is some of the best sculptures or the best things that you have created. It could be a sculpture. It could be a rail system. It could be anything. What are the best things that you guys have created? This and approximately how long did it take you? Because I know people build stuff and it, it takes them days, weeks. Right. Do you so, want to take well, this one? I could take this one, but if I say the best thing I've ever seen built on one of... No, the no, no. What is the thing okay, you have built? You have some shit. Well, I was... Yeah, I know yeah. what you're talking yeah, about. That's what yeah. I was going to get. Okay, all right, so you'll do your thing. All right, <laughs> the most, so... The proudest thing that you have ever made. Well, on my original map a couple of systems ago, <laughs> um, I had a castle that was built like the beginning of Minecraft. I started the map, built a castle. Eventually, I expanded outward in all directions, and I put sculptures of every single video game character that I could find in it all the way surrounded my castle. So, like, if you were on foot walking, you had to walk around all of the sculptures like a maze to get to my castle. It was really cool. And from a distance, you could just see this collage of characters. I was quite proud of that. That took months. Dang. That, that's before I met you, because I remember most of yours that you, that you created were just like, Big old sculptures that were just like in the sky. Yeah, we've done some of those too. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, that one was my most proud. That's um, nice. That's I, nice. I, I wish I would have seen that. I have two that I'm equally proud of. Well, you so, can only name one. Just kidding. I'm just kidding. Okay, okay. All right, <laughs> name so, the one you know I'm thinking of. So the one he's thinking of, I did these giant sculptures Huge. of a bunch of Dragon Ball characters. Mm -hmm. um, like, I'm talking like one of them probably took me three hours maybe yeah, maybe even longer each. like i've dumped hours into them and i put them all in a way that they are in like picture form like they're all standing there posing together mm -hmm. you know and I, I know for sure i got goku on there vegeta piccolo krillin android 18 and I believe Beerus as well. Yeah, Beerus is on there. Yeah, I, I've done a lot of them already, Jeez. and I plan on expanding that all the way across. The thing I'm most proud of personally, though, my number one thing, over top of the kingdom that we have built, I built this freehand dragon yeah, shooting dragon. fire out of its mouth. Oh, and it turned out so it's good. It's like an it's like the dragon is actually flying over us. And yeah, that's cool. The way it worked out was just beautiful. Like even down to the talons on his feet, it mm -hmm. all worked. I do remember yeah. seeing that dragon. That, that dragon, dragon's solid. It is. It is a beautiful dragon. Thank you. I do. I do actually really admire. I, I admire you guys' ability to create. Like I'm not an Thank artist. You. I don't have that ability, and I really wish I did. But I, I, I can't. Gives you something to do when you're bored. Now, I remember you mentioning several billions of times. 
and I also concurred with our favorite video games being The Last of Us 2. Mm -hmm. um, we can circle back to that eventually in a minute, but I want to know, between Fireball and Jake, you guys' favorite video games and why? Well, let's let uh, Jake speak on his favorite video games and why first, because we haven't heard from him in a second. Jake? Yeah, my uh, favorite video game of all time, video game series of all time. Um, I would have to say, there's so many that have to fall under action adventure. Legend of Zelda was a huge thing for me. I grew up playing that with my dad. Um, one, two. Uh, the N64 games, I didn't have an N64 at a PlayStation, but I always went over to my buddy's place and stay up super late playing Ocarina and Majora's Mask. Mm. Um but I would also say, as I got older, I would say Ratchet and Clank and Jack and Dexter. Oh, These games wow. were, fair. again, there's, there's a certain fun factor to it. And with those two, you can see a comparison as to what it is you like about that type of game. Like, they're similar in certain ways. Yeah. That's interesting. Right. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, my favorite game series of all time, I have a top three. Um, <laughs> number one, by far, hands down, Skyrim been my favorite game of all time oblivion introduced me into that and i've been a fan ever since i can't turn back minecraft being one of them endless gameplay and your mm -hmm. your efforts are what are your rewards however much work you're willing to put in is how much reward you get from the game um it's a fantastic concept and then three would be um probably grand theft auto or like basically the whole series but i'll say five because it was the best um, those three just stand out to me as timeless games that'll never get old, ever. Wow. Okay. Julian. I, I that, mean, if he's doing top three, can we do top three? Because I want to hear your top three. Well, we, I, 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 well, then we got to go back to Jake's top three. He gave us two. Yeah, he did give us two. Jake, what's another one? <laughs> oh, shit. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to that PlayStation era, man, Twisted Metal, that's another game that I have a lot of fun for. Yeah. Playing that with uh, a dad growing up and uh, some of my family and some of my friends around the time that 2 and 3 came out, everybody had their own copy, and that's what we did, man. Before Halo parties, we played uh, Twisted Metal 2 until like 3 a.m. That is yeah, a classic awesome. indeed. <laughs> I love Twisted Metal. I never really got into Twisted Metal much, but mm. I do. I do enjoy it. I do enjoy. When you it. got friends playing, that game is a blast. It's fun. Julian, we know Last of Us Two is number one. Yeah. What's your two and three? And we got to remember again that you ha you came from a different era than everybody. I, I did. <laughs> I did. I did come from a different era. My number three, I'm giving it to the PS4 Spider Man. That game really? is amazing. I love it. I've I played it three times, and I still don't even own it. I have to buy that again. My PlayStation took a poop on me. That's besides the point. Um, and then my number two... <laughs> number two. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Dad. Um, Jedi Fallen Order. Call oh, me crazy. I loved it. It's I loved game. the introduction of a new Jedi, and I thought Cal Kestis was great. The acting in it was phenomenal. Yes. Mm -hmm. The appearances that we got from like Vader at the end and like the Inquisitors, I loved to see it. It was a great game. And the lightsaber customization. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, the lightsabers cool. are actually pretty cool. I really didn't do it. I did like that. But then, of course, I put um, Last of Us above both of those. Well, why is that? Why Why is Last of Us 2 your favorite? Last of Us 2, for one, the story 
made me feel like no other game has. Like, mm-hmm. it was very gripping. And since I had already played and liked the first one, the stuff that they did story-wise, the choices they made, and killing people off, certain people, it made me want to see where it was going to go even more. And good not to Give mention... Yours. The gorgeous graphics, yes. The amazing weapon play, like how everything works and how the NPCs interact with each other, yeah. And how alive they feel. So when you blow their brains out and <laughs> splatter them on a wall, you're like, "Holy crap! I just killed Mark." <laughs> <laughs> and, and then Sheila over here will be like, "No, Mark!" and start crying, and I'm like, "Oh yeah. my god! Whoa!" whoa. And so that game made me feel insane. Plus the scary parts, the Rat King. Oh god, oh, the Rat dude. King is scary. Yeah, we're not talking about the Ninja Turtle Rat King. <laughs> right. I can't count how many times I had to change my diaper while playing that game. <laughs> so it, it, it got me. It got me, and I played it five times. It's nothing to your seven, but <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I love this so much. I actually played six and seven literally simultaneously. And I was playing one streaming and one off stream oh, nice. at the same, like literally same time. So That's I awesome. finished it off stream, and then like a week later, I finished it on stream. So. That's an addiction. <laughs> it is. Um, but my two and three, because my number one is also The Last of Us Two for the same reasons as you explained. But my second is. Ninja Gaiden 2. Ooh. I put so many hours into Ninja Gaiden 2. I, I mean a lot. I put a lot of hours into Ninja Gaiden 2. I, there were times where I actually played that game on repeat. And what system was that on? Uh, that came out Xbox 360. 360. I had it on 360, but I think uh, Ninja Gaiden 2 Sigma came out on PlayStation 3. So they had their own versions as well. Um, and I think ever since, and it just came out last year, the year before, I think it was last year, uh, they re-released the first three, again on PlayStation and I think on Xbox as well. So I played it again. I think that's probably like the only game that I have played and completed more than The Last of Us 2. But it's been out longer, so it is, it deserves that. And number three, it, it's a toss-up. It really is a toss-up. Um... But I'm going to have to go with Mortal Kombat, uh, the series, the series, be. because I have I have been playing that since 92. Since it came out, I have been playing it. Every mm-hmm. single one I have owned since the day it came out. Touche. So I, I definitely have to put that series up there. Uh, honorable mention, Red Dead Redemption 2. Really? Really? Okay. Yeah. But it, it didn't make my top three. Top five, but not top three. Gotcha. And while I, I brand new, off topic, I know we we got a little bit of time left, but uh, as I'm on here on the interwebs, you might be happy about this. Fireball announced or unannounced Kirby game seemingly teased in Japanese oh, magazine. So that's pretty cool. There's, there's a tease that there may be a new there may be a new uh, Kirby game coming out. Maybe coming for the Twitch. Let's Twitch Switch. <laughs> the Nintendo tweet. <laughs> but before we go, I like to throw out these extra curveballs yep. before we head out. Um, I want to know, since we've been talking about video games, if you were in a video game, what would your powers be? Oh, I want to hear what Jake has to say on this one. Uh-uh, no, we're going with you because Jake went first the last uh, three. Oh, I wanted to, okay, all right. 
If I was in a video game, what would my powers be? If you want me to be dead honest, if I'm being realistic, have you ever played Boogerman? Yes, I actually have. I I actually on Sega. Sega Genesis. Sega Genesis. That's me. I burp (laughs) and I fart to defeat my enemies. (laughs) I'm Boogerman too. (laughs) That is lovely. I absolutely love it. Now, Guy Man, what about you, buddy? Um, my power would be like crazy charisma. So that way everyone that I talk to just likes me, and then I could gather a following so that way I could cripple the government that keeps us in shackles. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like the perfect video game character, and I would play as him repeatedly. That'd be a fun game. Jacob, what is your video game superpower? Uh, I feel like I dicked over on that one. I don't know how I'm going to follow that up. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I would... It, this, this takes place in real life, right? Any 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 game that you want. Anything. Uh, yeah, no. I would take the ability to double jump and then become an NBA athlete. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> you just got to get rich quick speed. Nice. Use your power for money. I love it. Oh, oh, well, Okay. <laughs> In that case, that that is perfectly fine. Um, me, I mean, to be completely honest, I'm pretty sure two out of the three people know the powers that I would take. Spider-Man powers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Miles Morales. Ye- no, actually. You would take the Peter Parker. I would take the, the OG powers. Okay. I would take the OG. I I wouldn't Miles can build, do so he can much go more. invisible, dude. Okay, yeah, you sold me. He can go I go with Miles Morales. Just the invisibility alone would sell me. I'm like, shit, you know what I could do if I could go invisible? We're on air. We don't want to know. <laughs> I would just disappear so people would leave me the fuck alone. <laughs> <laughs> I think the electric would be kind of scary to have, honestly. Yeah, yeah it would be intimidating. That's a little dangerous. But. Yeah, that that is intimidating. Um, So, yes, that is it for today. I appreciate you guys being on. Do we have any final thoughts? Fireball. Final thoughts. Um, Yeah, I mean, you know, for those of you like Julian that's been grown up in... Uh, an era with uh, you know not really getting to truly experience the retro games. I would say get into them, find a way to play them. They're they're out there. Get mm-hmm. your hands on some and see how enjoyable they really are. Give them a chance. Don't just be like, oh, the graphics suck. No, pick it up. You might like it. We used to spend actual quarters just to play these damn things. Yeah, <laughs> you might like them. So give them a go. That's my final thought. Jacob, final thoughts. Uh, with this being a gaming episode, I am going to have to agree with Xbox employee Seamus Blackley and say that gaming is a lot like masturbating. <laughs> okay. Is that the period on the sentence? <laughs> that is the period on the episode. <laughs> okay, in that case, I agree with that absolutely. 100% right. for me. <laughs> <laughs> Guy Man, what about yourself? Final thoughts. Final thoughts. I am kind of envious of you guys in terms of the age that you got to grow up in because, like, I yes, I love my newer age games, and they're only getting better and better, mm. but to have the knowledge, well, for you anyway, to have the knowledge of the first video game and you've been around for it, 
crazy because you've literally evolved with video games as a whole. Yeah. Yes. I'm kind of getting the back half, so it's, it, it doesn't feel as right. like impactful yeah, to me. You, you know don't, what I mean? You didn't get to see the progression. Right. Yeah. But that's my final thought. And my final thoughts doing? are uh, whether you play Xbox, PlayStation, PC, Switch, or even mobile, uh, or VR, no, enjoy gaming because gaming that's that's fun. what that's that's what it's there for. It's gaming to enjoy and fuck the original team in Tio and NES. <laughs> I'm hapless Lucket. I'm Gavin Brodog. I'm rocking Fireball. And I'm a ghost. <laughs> and we'll see you guys Ooh. next time on Nerd Word. Bye. Socks are the number one most requested item at homeless shelters. Underwear second and shirts are third. At Bombas, socks were first, made with comfortable details for everyday wearing. Then underwear and shirts too, all designed to perfectly fit. At Bombas, every item you purchase means you're donating an essential clothing item to someone in need. One comfortable clothing item for you, one donated to someone in need. Bombas, comfort for all. Get 20% off your purchase at bombas.com slash comfy. Hey, Randy, what you doing? Oh, hey, Dave. I'm just making a list of things that make me feel really, really good. Wearing Bombas socks. Trust me, that's number one on my list. Bombas socks feel so good because we use the smartest design and best materials, making them the most comfortable socks ever. Plus, because socks are the number one most requested clothing item in homeless shelters, we donate a pair for every pair purchased, and that feels pretty good, too. To shop Bombas or learn more about how your purchase supports those experiencing homelessness, go to bombas.com slash comfy and get 20% off your first purchase. This program is designed to provide general information with regards to the subject matters covered. This information is given with the understanding that neither the hosts, guests, sponsors, or station are engaged in rendering any specific and personal, medical, financial, legal, counseling, professional service, or any advice. You should seek the services of competent professionals before applying or trying any suggested ideas. From Los Angeles, it's Spiritual Life Coaching with Ari Mack. She's just not another voice on the radio. She's the queen of life coaching. Whether it's love, finances, or any issues, Ari can help. Hello, hello, and hello. Welcome to Spiritual Life Coaching with Ari McIntyre. I'm your host, Ari McIntyre. I'm a spiritual life coach, affirmation aromatherapy candle maker, and meditation coach as well. Thank you so much for joining us this Thursday, January 20, 2022. Say that fast three times. 2022. Woo! I have to tell you guys, before we get into the affirmations and all that good shit, we have a retrograde going on in Mercury, and it's in Capricorn. And the thing about Capricorn is it's a hard-headed sign. I love my Capricorns, but they do like to do things the hard-ass way. And so if you find yourself running against the same thing and you're feeling very, very frustrated and possibly a little irk, this energy is going to be going on till about February 3rd. I'm personally experiencing it, so trust me when I say slow down. I mean, my, my engineer had to tell me to take a deep breath. 
because we, I've been running into technical difficulties all morning. So I'm telling you, if I'm feeling it, I know so damn well you guys are feeling it. So breathe. Find, find that middle. I know it's hard. I know it's hard for me. So I'm just putting it out there that we do have a Mercury retrograde. It started on the 15th of this month, and it won't end until February 3rd. So we got a little bit of time to dance with it. And, you know, hopefully, you know, it's not that bad of a dance. So just keep that in mind. Yeah? Okay. Today's theme is going to be health. Because I've always talked about health, wealth, love, and perfect self-expression. With those things, guys, if you can accomplish those consistently every day, then you are rich, abundant, and successful. Because you are doing all the things you're supposed to be doing. You're reaching your own personal goal. And isn't that what the journey is about? Yeah? Okay. So... Uh, Today, we're going to focus on health. It's something I think we take for granted. I know I've spoken it before many, many times on this show, but today we're really going to emphasize it, and we have a special treat. I have a professional yoga instructor who I've had the pleasure of being in her class calling in, and her name is Julia Enrique, and I cannot wait for you guys to hear her, so look for that. That's coming up in the next segment, and I'm looking for the affirmation because, like I said, it's been a discombobulating morning uh, with all the good stuff that's going on with this pandemic. They've changed my daughter's schedule several times, which means I have to jump through hoops because that's just the way it goes when you're when you're a parent, right? Right. So I'm going to start off with suggesting very strongly that you consider drinking your water. Now, I know we haven't spoken about water in a, quite some time, but I do think it's important that we go back to the basics, which is just drinking your basic, basic, basic. 64 ounces of water a day, which is is doable, guys. And you can do that in a 24-hour window. Now, I use bottles, like the little uh, 16.9 or 8 ounces of the Nestle water bottles. And I know when I hit four or five of those, I've hit my water intake for the day. But they have, like, these wonderful little reusable cups. There's all kinds of ways to do it. And you don't have to start off drinking the full amount. You can start off drinking just a cup of water. Yeah, just a cup and maybe, maybe another cup and just kind of play with that and just get acclimated to just trying. You don't have to do everything all at once, but I'm telling you the intent right now will go a long, long, long way. Now, the affirmation for this show, which is an affirmation that's on the candles from Candles Maori, is clearing my mind, clear my mind so I can open my heart to communicate my needs under grace and perfect way, harming none and taking away from nobody, and so it is. Clear my mind so I can open my heart to communicate my needs. How many of us do that? How many of us actually clear our hearts, clear our minds to just communicate what our needs are under grace and perfect way? And I'm going to segue into yoga. Um, It is one of the best forms of breathing on earth. And I know it may sound a little intimidating. When Julia comes on a little later, she's going to help break that down a little bit, but it's not intimidating at all. And the technique that you can learn from yoga can be life-altering. I'm going to say that again. The techniques that you can learn from yoga can be life-altering. Why do I say that? Because it's very rare, rare, it's very rare. Did I say that three times? Rare. Four times. That we slow down consciously and make a decision to focus just on our breathing and on our body without some duress. I mean, let's be honest. Usually we push to the max and then we're forced to slow down. 
I hope that this show and everything that I'm doing with my products and my services is encouraging you to slow down before you hit the wall, okay? And if you know you're going to hit the wall, communicate that so that people around you can also be aware of where you're at intellectually and spiritually, okay? So this affirmation is one of my oldies but goodies. That's why it's on the candles. Clear my mind so I can open my heart to communicating my needs under grace in perfect way, harming none and taken away from nobody. And so it is. When I first created this affirmation, I remember uh, it was for one of my students who was having a really hard time communicating. And she was working with the yellow candle a lot. And she was getting some things done, but she wasn't hitting the level that she wanted. And when she finally just started clearing her head, because she was doing her affirmation, she was doing her prayers. She was following, you know, all the good things she's supposed to have been doing. But she had to be honest that even when she was doing her affirmations, she was still focusing on other things. She was still distracted by other things that were going on around her. So when she decided to take five minutes, and that's all it takes, guys, is five good, solid minutes of just hearing yourself. Listen to what you're saying to yourself. Okay, because you're communicating this to self. Clear my mind so I can open my heart to communicating my needs under grace and perfect way. Wow. Anyway, I wanted to share that with you because that has been one of the more popular ones. And energetically speaking, when it comes to health, I think clearing your mind and listening to your heart literally can save your life. Because your body's talking to you. So you don't have to get to the point where you have sores and ailments. You have aches. You have fevers. There's little signals along the way, guys, when the body needs what it needs. Now, if you're getting enough sleep, drinking enough water, uh, even doing tw 20 minutes of walking, doesn't have to be a lot, you're going to start feeling a little bit stronger, a little bit more healthier, a little bit more relaxed. Because you, we're just nothing but sponges, guys. We're a bunch of cells in this little skin walking around, trying to keep our emotional, you know, self from going cuckoo and keep connecting to our spiritual selves because we all need love. But the first person we have to love, the first person we have to take care of no matter what is self, starting with your health, your physical health, because without that, it's pretty tough. I'm not, not going to say it's impossible to be happy and live a very fulfilled life, but I am going to say it could be rather tough. Because we all come down here with some sort of mission, uh, some sort of excitement. We want to contribute. We want to do something. And your health has to be a part of that. Taking care of you is going to make you a better you. And making you a better you, oh, my goodness, the things, the miracles, how incredible you are when you are really focused and driven and centered. I don't know about you, but I think that's totally sexy. Confidence has been one of the things that people forget and they don't really consider until they, you know, have to look at, do I have the confidence to do things? Do I have the confidence to, to wear this outfit? And really it goes into how you treat yourself because if you're treating yourself right, okay, if you're clearing your mind so you can open your heart to communicate your needs, like this affirmation says, then you'll be able to find the right outfits that complement your body. You'll be able to put on the right colors that make you feel good or Go to the right store to get the assistance you need. And money won't be the object because you're looking for something in particular. So the money and the need will meet. They'll come together. But it takes this heart to direct yourself, your desire, 
that spiritual innate force that pushes us to get up in the morning, to put on clothes, to comb your hair, hopefully, take a shower, and try to look pretty as we go through this world. Now, health has been a long, long, long battle for a lot of us because maybe you haven't had the best eating habits and maybe you haven't had the best sleeping habits. You know, traditional things don't necessarily mean you have a traditional lifestyle. So make the adjustment as needed. If you work the night shift, just make sure you're doing enough in the day. You know, if you have a crazy, wacky schedule, because Lord knows with this pandemic, everything is shifted. So don't be too hard on yourself, but take into consideration where you are at, okay? And fit these things that I'm suggesting into your day-to-day schedule. Now, going back to yoga, because that's today's theme with the health, um, I am proud to say that I've been doing it for over seven, eight years now. And even with the pandemic, a lot of my favorite yoga studios have gone. I have come to um, accept working on the net, internet, like we all are doing now. And I found some pretty great programs. And YouTube has a lot of resources. So even though it's not as intense as I would like, and I love being in class, and I can't wait till Julia comes on in the next segment, I have to make the adjustment that we're not going to be able to do that right now. I'm sure it'll come back because I do think there's going to be some resolutions to this situation. But right now, where I sit, I can't do it. And that's a bummer. But I had to grow past it, you know, because I was still doing 30 minutes a day, maybe not as intense, mostly my downward-facing dog and, you know, a couple of basic moves and a couple of routines that I remembered. But without having, I would say, the support, it felt a little lonely. I'm not going to lie. So I'm happy to say that I've found, a, you know, a community online, and I am looking forward to the community live coming back. But yoga is a gift, you guys, that is, it continues to give. It is not something that you have to do in abundance. You can actually do it very, very simply. You could sit in a chair and do yoga. You know what I mean? It's awesome. Okay, so we got to take a little bit of a break. That's what that song is. But I want you to come back. We're on K4HD.com. I'm the coach, spiritual coach, Ari Mack. I love using candles by Ari. Not only do they smell beautiful, they're a powerful tool to use during your yoga and meditation, which is when I love to use them. And in each bottle, there's a beautiful prayer to help set your intention for each day, for each moment, or whenever you need strength and guidance. I feel the love that she infuses in each of her bottles and I highly recommend everyone getting not just one but more than one for every occasion, for every intention, for as gifts and for yourself. Hey Ari, what candle do you recommend during this pandemic? I recommend the Red Courage candle. It's got hints of rose, a little lavender, And right now with everything's going on, rose and lavender could just keep you calm and relaxed. Because after all, where is the love? It's at Candles by Ari. Get your 16-ounce red rose candle today at CandlesByAri.com. Candles by Ari is exactly what you need in life. She's chicken noodle soup. 
and everything in between for your soul, your mind, your body. The candles she makes, oh my God, are better than any candles you will ever get. They burn so clean and they have your house smelling wonderful, but will uplift your soul in a way you never ever thought could be uplifted. Please run and get candles by Ari. Everyone needs someone to help them from time to time. Someone who listens and understands you. Not everyone can look inside your heart, but Ari can. She can help you find what your heart is looking for. Give her a call at 818-762-4256 or visit www.candlesbyari.com. Aromatherapy Beyond the Senses. Hey guys! Have you checked out Ari's candle website? No? Go to candlesbyari.com today. Join her blog and her community. If you will enjoy the show, then you will definitely want to be a part of her club on the site. Aromatherapy candles and affirmations that work. Go to candlesbyari.com today. Matter of fact, do it right now. Go. Get on your computer like right now. Candlesbyari.com. See? That was easy. Welcome back to Spiritual Life Coaching with Ari Mack. We're taking your calls at 818-570-5443. And we're back with Spiritual Coach Ari Mack on kboyc.com. Today we're talking about health. Okay, and happy birthday to my Aquarius is the sun's tip-tip-toeing into Aquarius, so we know you guys are electric and unpredictable, and happy birthday to you. Now, as you know, I've always, you know, encouraged everybody to have health, wealth, love, and perfect self-expression. Well, health is really, really important, and it's something that I think we can all agree, especially with this pandemic, that we need to put an emphasis on the pre- preventive part of it. Well, I believe if your spiritual well-being is in good shape, then you're probably going to make more physically better decisions, which are going to set you up mentally. See how that works? Now, with yoga, the thing that I've noticed from the beginning was the deep breathing techniques that it offers, okay? It just helps you find that little voice inside of yourself to say, take a deeper breath, open the lungs a little bit more. And if you go into a a yoga pose, The whole purpose, I feel, is to get more oxygen into the body, into that flow, into that area that maybe you don't normally stretch. You know, maybe you don't move in that direction. I find a lot of us just are straight up and down. Hey, Ari, you got a caller on the line. Hey, now, is this Miss Julia Enrique? Is this Miss Enrique? Yes. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Okay, guys, this is the professional, professional yoga lady that I've been telling you about. I have been wanting her to come on the show. I have been in her class. She's amazing. Miss Julio, thank you for showing up today. Thank you for having me. This is awesome what you're doing. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Do you want to give us a little bit of your background? Because, you know, you've been New York, Brazil, I mean, world traveler. Yeah. Yeah. I feel really blessed. I, I was born and raised in New York City on the Upper West Side. My parents are from Argentina. My extended family is from Argentina. So um, my parents came from South America in the 80s, and they planted right by Columbia University, where my dad got a job. And I grew up in that neighborhood. Um, 
went to, nice. you know, school in New York. And I actually got into yoga really young. I was like 14. And, um, you know, it's New I York. Think it interesting. Yeah. It's because it's New York. They just make yoga available for such a young person. Yeah. Well, it's it's like there's all these things all intertwined and there's so much available. And okay. I was like, there was all of these studios, like little boutique mom and pop studios. And my mm. babysitter was really into yoga. And she was like, yeah, man, I think she picked me up after school one day. And she was like, do you want to go to a yoga class with me? And I was like, sure. I was always I was always into like the hippie stuff. <laughs> you know yeah I'm like even before that well we're thankful um, that you are I mean you're like certified <laughs> okay magnified absolutely I love you you know you're a mommy you. and um, yep. you know this woman in class because I, I want you to talk about yoga and, and giving some clear definitions because I think people are you know a little intimidated but I mean this lady mm-hmm. can get you into all kinds of poses guys I mean like yeah. What do you define as yoga? Let me tell you just a little bit more about the studios that I like studied with to give you an idea of like all the different kinds of yoga that I really looked into because there are so many different kinds. True that. And true that. they're really different from each other. And almost like each teacher is going to create their own blend of yoga because any teacher who's been around has studied different kinds of yoga. So I started with you know, vinyasa flow. And then I eventually made my way to yoga works when I was 18. And yoga works teaches a blend between a kind of yoga called Ashtanga yoga and another called Iyengar yoga. And Ashtanga yoga, these are like traditions of yoga that come straight from teachers from India, um, like mm. passed down through like a very, you know, special tradition. Right. And one of these teachers was really into like very, and a very athletic kind of yoga that like you really young kids, like I think he was teaching it to like gymnasts in India when he started developing this kind of yoga. Mm. And then Iyengar was more focused on injury because he himself had a lot of injuries and illnesses growing up. Iyengar, BKF Iyengar. Interesting, interesting, mm-hmm. interesting. So he developed a lot of like use of props and and that includes the wall and the floor. So he would do a lot of, poses using the floor using the wall um like a lot of different kinds of support Mm, and um and so lately you know I I, anyway I went through yoga works training 500 hours with them and then studied with various different teachers like as I kept teaching in New York and LA and then when the pandemic hit and I started kind of going more off on my own I started to study with more Iyengar teachers Mm, so um I think what kind of brings all the different kinds of yoga together, though, just to answer your question about, like, what is yoga? um, It's about, if I could simplify it down to, like, the most simple way of thinking about it, it's moving and breathing in a way where you're, you're letting go of the outside distractions and you're really focusing and committing yourself to just being with your body and your breath and just putting your focus there. Even if you get distracted in your own head, which you will, right? You get mm-hmm. wander, your mind will wander. Absolutely. But it's yeah. that time and place to be like, okay, I'm sitting or I'm standing or whatever and here and I close my eyes and I'm going to let everything else that I have to do fall away and I'm just going to be with how it feels to have my feet on the floor, how it feels to be sitting on the floor, how it feels to be breathing right now. Oops. 
you know, mm-hmm. what do I hear around me? What do I feel? What does my skin feel like? If I have an injury, being with the sensations of that injury is as like hard as that could be. It's important. Um, so yeah, that's, yeah, totally. That's meditation. Yeah. That's like the essence of meditation. You know, you're funny because I talked to you a couple of days ago and you said, I got 15 minutes on my mat today, which, you know, yes. I think that you're on your mat all the time. You're like, I got 15 <laughs> minutes and I feel good. <laughs> Yes, exactly. I know how hard it is. I do. I get it. I have two little kids now. Well, you also have been, you know, doing this for so long that you've been a great example to a lot of people, you know, because even when you were pregnant and she was gorgeous, you guys, she was like this glowing, like Buddha energy all around her and with this little belly because she's not a big lady. She's kind of tiny, you know, <laughs> and you were still teaching. It was amazing yeah. just to watch you, you know. I was like, dang, this child is advanced. Because, I mean, you were doing it and you were pregnant, which made it even doubly yeah. more beautiful, you know. Um, you. The, the thing I also wanted to, to bring up is that you don't have to be in excellent condition to start doing yoga, mm-hmm. correct? Right. Totally. Um, A lot of people are intimidated by that. Yeah. I want to put a certain teacher out there because I don't want to take credit for what I'm about to say, but okay. there's this teacher that I studied with called Mark Whitwell. So, you know, if you're like really new to yoga and you feel like yoga isn't for you because you're not X, Y, and Z enough, flexible, fit, skinny, whatever, mm-hmm. um, listen to him because his whole message is that, yeah, and the, and the sequences that he teaches are like really simple. So it's mm. literally like standing, right? Because standing is a is a pose. Standing on your mm. feet is a yoga pose. Uh oh, um, that's a pose. Mountain pose. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Exactly. Okay, yes. Standing on your two feet is called a mountain pose. Tadasana. So mm-hmm. um, basically, he, you know, like one of his sequences that he teaches all the time. He just has people stand and put one hand on their heart, one hand on their belly. And he has them breathe through their nose or has mm-hmm. us, right? I've taken, I've taken this class with him a million times. Mm-hmm. And you basically hear the sound of your breath in your throat, which is called ujjayi breath, ocean sounding breath. So you hear this like rushing sound in the base of your throat as you're breathing in and out of your nose. Mm-hmm. And then once you've really established that breath, a long, slow, smooth breath in and out of your nose, you start moving your arms. Right? So you inhale and you lift your arms up and you look up, you see the sky, and then you exhale and you take your arms down by your side and you look straight ahead. And you just do that for a couple of times, that's like it. just really slow. That's it. Okay. Um, and that's it. You know, that's and it. I think, so that's like I think my listeners can do that. Yoga sequence. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's, that's the thing I've, I've heard when I hear, when people hear the word yoga, they always think of Indian or India and right. this far-fetched yeah. way off, like, Sanskrit type of thing, which does exist. I mean, they do have advanced. Yeah. I mean, I've seen some students that are amazing. You know, I yeah. mean, I'm still learning. I always feel like I'm a work in progress. You know, all of us. <laughs> yes, forever. Anybody who says they know it all, like, do not trust that person. No, <laughs> no, no. And I love the breathing. Yeah, like what you said about the breathing. I mean, because there's a there's mm-hmm. one particular yoga style called restorative that I think oh, anybody yeah. can do. And if you want to elaborate a little bit more on restorative, I mean, it is, I mean, you can almost fall asleep in the class if you're not careful. 
Yeah. <laughs> and to be full disclosure here, like I've fallen asleep on my yoga mat many times. Like there were so many times when I was a new mom or I think even when I was pregnant too, where I would come to my mat so exhausted that I would literally lay down because like, I, I, I didn't have it in me. And yep. all the teachers that I felt comfortable with, they would let me, you know, just fall asleep on my mat. But that's okay because, though, right? Yeah, of course, because it's not about performing. It's not about like giving a result. It's mm-hmm. about showing up. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think that that difference, like when you change the focus from not what the result of your action is, but just the, the intention behind it, like why am I showing up? Okay. You, you know, your motivation just totally changes. That's huge. That's huge. Yeah. That's a change in your mental condition. You know, exactly. you're literally yeah, focusing, yeah, totally refocusing on something that you can attain, which is breathing, yeah. standing in one spot, doing what you call the mountain. Being pose. there. Yeah. Like making the choice to just be on your mat because you always have so many choices of what you could be doing. And sure. we're all overwhelmed especially now with like social media and technology and the pandemic and this and that. So many things happening, so many things pulling our attention, so many choices of what to do with our time. And just making the decision to be on your mat is huge because it means that you've prioritized something that you've made that time for you to just be, Mm -hmm. just be not do anything necessarily is like, it's really big and it's a hard thing to do. That's why the other day I was like, Oh my God, I got on my mat for 15 minutes. It feels so good. Guys, this is a true story. I I can't even make this up because I was like 15 minutes. Like I think she's on her mat, like two hours, three hours a day. She's like, no, no, you know, but the health benefits (laughs) as well though, the, the, the breathing and what it does for your stress level. I mean, that's a whole nother beast. Right, because yeah, it's not like hard, whole, but the, yeah, the the benefits. But what I liked about how you always brought the class together was the first thing you did was like just get comfortable. That's the first thing you would mm-hmm. say when you started classes. I need you guys mm-hmm. to get whatever you need. You want your props? Mm-hmm. You want your blankie? You know, because we were at a full mm-hmm. service mm-hmm. studio, guys. So the studio had blankets yeah. and and things to play with, which is always pre-COVID. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Pre-COVID, pre-COVID. And I miss it. I miss it so much. But so you would show up with the mat and then you'd have your blankets, your blocks, your rope, because we're not perfect. You know, none of our bodies are all going to fit in the same way. To get all the props whenever. And, you know, I usually have some kind of plan, like an idea in my head of what I want to teach. So, you know, I'll ask people for certain things, but I encourage everybody, if you're in a place that has the props to always Mm -hmm. get two blocks, two blankets and a strap. That's like my yep. baseline. That's like fast you food can be for yoga. so many things. You can, you can, or yeah. you can make yourself so comfortable guys. I have gotten so snug that I forgot I was in class. Okay. I was like, wake up girl. <laughs> Especially no, if it's okay of- because sometimes you just need it to sleep. Sometimes your body just really needs that. True. That's true. And I, I like the way, especially when I was with you in class, I mean, because I know you're doing online and I want you to talk about that in a few moments. But the okay. thing I liked about your style was that you were always very calming, even with people who I think were a little mm-hmm. bit challenging, especially if they were newer to class and they felt mm-hmm. kind of like they should do more, like they were pushing it. You're like, mm-hmm. no, 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 mm-hmm. just slow down, mm-hmm. slow down, mm-hmm. relax, 
You know what I mean? But yeah. um, so you're doing it online, though, right? You are sharing your beautiful talent. Yeah. With us online. Okay. Thank How do we talk so much? Yeah. So um, I like. So what I liked about teaching in that studio, I just want to touch on like the kinds of classes that I teach. Because yeah, I teach mostly geared towards beginner, intermediate. Um, I'm teaching a lot of privates right now, one-on-one. I work with somebody who has Parkinson's. I work with somebody who has a hip replacement, somebody who just had a baby, you know, and I really enjoy that. And I really enjoy teaching beginners and like intermediate students because I am obsessed with the basics of yoga, like the foundations. And that's why whenever I was teaching, I would always tell people to slow down because even if you've been practicing for 25 years and you have tons of experience with yoga, when you're doing the basics in a very specific, refined way, it's always going to be challenging. And like, that's why when you were saying like, oh my gosh, I'm always learning. I'm like, yes, we are all always learning. And we are all always going to be challenged by the basics when we're doing it in alignment. Absolutely. Really paying attention. So yeah, so I have a website. My website is Julia's Path, Julia's Path. Dot com. Everybody calls me Julia, but it's called Julia, J-U-L-I-A. <laughs> it's um, the American version. <laughs> exactly. JuliasPath.com. Okay. Um, right. and, and I um, have my Instagram, too, where I, I communicate a lot on there. It's Julia's Path Yoga. And I have a class I teach once a week on Zoom that's open to the public. It's Tuesdays at 10 uh, LA time. Okay. But I record the class, so there's people who can't make that time, but um, they get the recording. Awesome. Yeah, that's what I'm doing right now. Well, you know what I like to do because I adore you? Because I put out a blog, and I have my own community. So I would love to include whatever you like in my future blog and blast out to my people because, you guys, this lady, when she says she's going to help you, you can ask her the simplest question, even though it sounds like uh, I should know that. And she won't make you feel silly for asking. You know, you'll exactly. feel like, okay. Yeah, and you're really good at that, though. I mean, because, like, dealing with so many different type of people, okay? And, I like, I've been around you for quite some time. You still have to keep your own balance and keep, you know, that's why I thought it was so adorable when you said, I did 15 minutes today. I can't tell you how much I laughed when I got off the phone. <laughs> I was like, I just think that you sit on a mat, I think. You know what I mean? Like, my, I, like I, what, she sits on a mat all day? You know Because I, mean? <laughs> I do like a half an hour. And I think, wow, that was good because that's all I got. But I used to do like four or five hours a week when we were in class. I could go to class. I had that discipline, that accountability. You know, you guys as teachers all had different flavors. So I had a lot of challenges you know and everybody always pushed me to be better everybody always encouraged it you know which you can't buy that because that's genuine I know you know Mm -hmm. and I just want Mm -hmm. people to know if you decide to talk to Miss Julia here or go to any yoga class the teachers should be of that caliber they should be that open to wherever you are right they should not make you feel uncomfortable totally or like not enough and there are, I think, a lot of teachers who only know how to teach one kind of yoga and don't know how to modify a lot. And this is what, I mean, I'm, I'm not paid by the Iyengar Institute or anything, but like I mm-hmm. would suggest people check out Iyengar Yoga, even if, again, you've been a yoga practitioner for years, you have tons of experience. If you haven't already checked out Iyengar Yoga, I think it's really, and that's where the restorative um, mm-hmm. tradition comes from too. Uh, it's so smart and it's 
so therapeutic. Like it's just, it's literally therapy. You know, it doesn't feel like I'm kind of risking my injury or my body. Um, and teachers are really prepped to modify. They know how to serve different kinds of students with different kinds of bodies. Like, and I think that that is so huge because yeah, the last thing that yoga is about is making people feel um, like they're not enough. In fact, that's one thing that Mark Whitwell talks about a lot, which is yoga means like the union because the word yoga translates into union is Mm -hmm. being with what is and like being with the beauty and the miracle, right? The miracle of life. Like we're awake, we're alive, we're in this body, we're having this experience. Like, what is this? Who is, who are we? What is happening? What are we feeling? What is this experience? Like that's really the presence that yoga is about. Absolutely. And I love the fact that it's gentle. This is not something, guys, no matter when you start, where you should feel jarred, your body should be overheating. Now, you're going to get hot, but it's a, a slow burn as opposed to jumping in and trying to, like, run as fast as you can, I, I think. I mean, for me, it's like... And there are people like that, you know? And the truth is, I had a period in my life when I was really into the strenuous, hot, hard classes, and I... You know, I was a teenager or I was in my 20s and I had a lot of energy and my body was not as tired. I didn't have as many responsibilities, you know, like mm-hmm. it was mm-hmm. different. And that's what I needed at that time. So there are that kind, there is that kind of yoga for the people that really need it to that. calm themselves down. Yeah. But yeah. then for somebody whose body is already, you know, tired or in pain or mm-hmm. like, you know, working, working through blockages, um, mm-hmm then yeah, like having something that's slow and steady is I find really key because that's how change change doesn't happen all hot and heavy necessarily. Like it it has to be gradual. There's a step, there's a progression. So yeah, that's really important, I think. And you should never hurt when you're in yoga. I I told you the story about a friend of mine who went into a class and I told her it was too advanced. And she went in anyway, and she came out, and she was like, this was so hard. It was ridiculous. I'm like, the teacher should have modified you because she was not right for the class. I mean, I could just, you know, the sequences just looked difficult to me, but she just wanted yeah. to try it, and it left a bad taste in her mouth. You know, she's like, it's too hard, and it hurt. And I was like, oh, my goodness, that's not how it runs, you know? And that's yeah. why I wanted you to come on today just to break it down. Simple breathing is where it starts, you know, just yeah. taking and listening to that body. You know? Yeah, and, and it's really also about finding a teacher that resonates with you. Because, yeah, even within the same style of yoga, there's might be some teachers that just rub you the wrong way for whatever reason. True. Um, True. So finding a teacher that you like, like somebody that you're like, oh, I like this person. Like, I could I could hang out with this person for an hour yeah. and listen to them talk. And, and that's <laughs> what I wanted you to share. Like, what would you recommend for someone to look for if they were just beginning, a, you know, to get their little baby toe into this world of yoga, what would you recommend they start or how should they go about getting involved? Any recommendations? I mean, I always think that like starting from, I believe in signs. I believe things do pop up for a reason. So like if there is a studio in your neighborhood that you like have never checked out or you've seen something online that like piqued your interest, like, Oh, that place looks kind of cool or whatever. Like, I think it's always good to follow that trail and see where it leads you. Because, again, there are so many different kinds of yoga and yoga studios and yoga schools. I love Yoga Works. I was trained there for years. 
A lot of my mentors come from Yoga Works, so I vouch for Yoga Works. Uh, YogaWorks.com. And so, you know, it is, it's an online studio. I've actually been there. I've been a member. Uh, they're online only right now, so I don't think there's any locations open, but it is a fantastic organization. And once again, nobody's getting an yeah. endorsement for yeah. this. They're just, they rock. Yes. They just rock. Yeah. <laughs> I think they have a really good comprehensive way to serve students of all kinds. So the second thing that I would say to somebody who's starting, who's brand new, is like make sure that you voice like all of your concerns and your injuries and anything that like the teacher should know about to like the front desk or the people, the greeters, like the people that you first meet, like, hey, don't be afraid to be open about what your journey has been, what led you here, what what are you worried what do you want out of it and what are you what do you not want out of it? What do you, you know if you have concerns about certain um, physical, whatever, like be, let that all be known. Um, so that that community can point you in the right direction. Like, Oh, you sounds like, you, you know, teacher so-and-so would be great for you. And, um, they can like match students up well that way. Cause yeah, I think like hearing about your friend, I think also our own ego sometimes gets in the way and we're like, Oh no, I don't want to tell them about my problems. I don't want to tell them about my injuries. Or that, like, I have this concern or whatever. But, like, it's going to – it will pay off to be it will. honest that way. Because because then you get your, need, your needs met. And you don't feel like you're somewhere where the expectations of what, you're, of what you're doing, what the class is doing, is not matching up with what you wanted, you know. And that's so important. You know, so finding a good location, looking for a mentor and a teacher that you can resonate with. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. these are the things you should take away. I also would say make sure it's gentle because you should never, mm-hmm. ever be in pain. In my opinion, you tell yeah. me if I'm wrong, while you're actually oh. in your poses. You I'll should never this. be in pain. There, if a teacher ever makes you feel bad for not doing something or not doing what what they're saying, uh, unless you're, like, being deliberately dangerous. Like, I've been in classes before where I remember this one class in West Hollywood, like, this person showed up and like the teacher was teaching one thing and they were off doing their own thing but not like oh you know they're like you know they know what they're doing it's like it's chill they've got it like this guy was like like he was like break dancing like in the middle oh. of the room like spinning oh. on his head you know like people are around him like wait I don't want this person to fall on me so like don't be that person you know like if you're gonna mod- if you're gonna modify like be gentle be cool like you know keep it contained make sure that you're not going to fall on other people or like yeah. you know whatever but i think that ever makes safe, you feel right? bad mm-hmm. yeah you need to listen to your body you really need to not push not be aggressive with yourself not no because your body will tell you your body will tell you i remember i tried to do this uh this pose once where it was what is it, the when you were legs down mm-hmm. and you're like back at me. I don't know the terms. I don't have them down, but I know how to do them. <laughs> and this day, I would not balance on one leg. It would not happen. Mm. I I did one mm. leg. Like, my right side was rocking. My left side told me to mm. go jump in the leg. And I just started laughing yeah. at myself in class because I just had to go into, you know, just then because I, I, I lost it. <laughs> you know, it was like yeah. the body said no. And you know what my teacher said? Yeah. Just do child's pose. Just do your child's pose. You're doing fine. And I just... Surrender. You can always do child's pose. Um, and would you describe always. child's pose just for those that don't know what that means? 
Well, here's the other thing. Child's pose isn't comfortable for everybody because child's pose is basically being in a fetal position on your knees. So you're curled up into a ball with your knees on the floor, your head is down on the floor, or your head can be like supported on a, on a block. So you're in a fetal position. You're all curled up. Mm-hmm. Um, but some people's knees, you know, they, they don't bend that far. So you can also just sit, you know, sit any way you like, close your eyes. You can lay on your back. You can always lay or on your stomach, you just lay down, you know, always a good idea. And if for somebody was like having trouble balancing in my class, like I tell them that they can put their hand against the wall. They can come to a wall. Um, you, if this is why we love her. This is why we love her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's so many things you could do. You could, if you're balancing on one leg, like if you're doing tree pose, you can put the, the ball of your other foot. So like if you're balancing on your left leg, you could put the ball of your right foot on the floor. So you're basically on your right tippy toes. Right. That makes sense. And, and that's not cheating. That's the, that's the thing. There's no cheating no. in yoga. That's just where you are today. Exactly. There's you know? stages. There's mm-hmm. always a stage before and a stage. Like, there's a peak, right? Like where the pose like peaks. Like, okay, we don't go any further than this. We just hold. Mm-hmm. But there's always a progression, like steps. You know what? I so want you to come back and do some more stuff with us about this yoga thing because I do want to break into the benefits because you're so knowledgeable, yeah. my love. Yeah. I mean, you blow my mind when I talk to you. And I am going to come to your class again online. I just mentioned in the early oh, segment wow. that I am I am getting back into the Internet thing because I work so much on the net that sometimes I just don't want to do it. But it's enough. Yeah, enough. I it. Enough. I got to stop being yeah. like that at least once or twice a week. I can show up. And you said your class is on Tuesday? Yeah. And yeah. where is it airing? And is it on uh, Instagram? Is it on Instagram? Like, how do we So find- it's on Zoom. So if you want to come to the class, you go to my website, juliaspath.com, juliaspath.com. And then okay. you'll see that it says classes, and you go to classes, and then you can either pay for a single class, which is 15, or a group class, or a, a bundle class, three classes in okay. a bundle, and that's 10 per class. So you can take either one. And then once you purchase the class, you'll have a password and you go to find the day that you want to come, click on it. It'll ask you for the password to register you. And then that's it. And then it'll send you a link for Zoom. And you use that that Zoom link to get into the into the Zoom room. And I mean, you're only doing like $15, guys. That is a steal. That is a steal to have this lady break it down to you. Okay, because that's what she's talking about. I mean, the techniques, when she's talking about the different styles, I mean, she's blending those all in one set session. I don't think people realize what a benefit that can be, you know, and that's your knowledge. And, you know, I do, okay, I know we're coming to the end because I got to, you know, we have an hour for the show. They should give me more time, right? (laughs) (laughs) But I definitely want to hook up with you because I know you're doing a couple of things live and maybe do some one-on-ones and maybe we'll tape it you guys and put it up on the YouTube because this woman is fantastic and when you watch her in action I mean I completely trust her when I'm in class if she tells me to do something I think I can do it you You know and that's really so critical to be a good yogi is to be a good listener you know and surrender when you know I you know so um you got to come back Okay, I, I think I'm going to put you in my blog. And so you're going to be getting some more attention because I think this is a very important, simple exercise that anybody can do anywhere, any age. I agree. And, you know, and I just want to spread that light. 
as much as possible. I love so, what you're doing. I'm so grateful for you to have me on here. And just like, I love everything that you're promoting and the message that you're spreading and just simple things that make such a huge difference in the way our life turns out. So thank you. Thank you for showing up and definitely come back. Okay, my love? Okay. okay, guys, this always blew by as usual, but I love you. You know, I adore you. Go to Candles by R. We got white candle specials this month. Join the community. You're going to be glad you did. And we'll be back next week. Same time, same channel. Peace.